Good day, folks. Welcome to the Candlelight Podcast. I have a very special guest for you today. The one, the only, our very own, Barnabas Piper. <laughs> Barnabas is an author, speaker, husband, father, and most relevantly for Andrew and I, Director for Community at our church, Emmanuel Nashville. Barnabas recently released his fourth book, Hoping for Happiness, Turning Life's Most Elusive Feelings into Lasting Reality. This book is available anywhere books are sold, and you may want to go get you a copy. We discuss his new book, of course, what he's learning since going full-time on staff at church, writing, the state of the church, what it means to be a recovering cynic, and a bunch more, including such fascinating topics as the most logical and obvious arguments for and against wearing a mask. (laughs) Uh, You may be interested in checking out our YouTube channel as well. If you haven't yet, just hit that subscribe button. And if you enjoy this conversation, please consider texting the link to a friend who you think would enjoy it as well. Andrew and I would really appreciate that. Now give it up for the wonderful man himself, Mr. Barnabas Piper. Barnabas Piper, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, man. Really appreciate it. You watched that uh, vice president debate last night? Nope. Um, I make special note of when there are political debates, and then I don't watch TV. Stay away. Yeah. Did you watch the first presidential debate? Nope. Falls under the same category. Oh, I just yeah. I have to decide what's good for my soul and my mind, and usually I take about a five-second look at Twitter and yeah. think, I think I made the right decision, at least yeah. for me. I don't... I, don't, I think so. I mean, look, yeah. if, uh, if it's not of particular interest, I mean, to be quite honest, if I didn't feel a sense of obligation or interest in keeping up, you know, with those types of things, mm-hmm. including like for the, for this podcast, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily watch it. It's not like it's a, a good pastime. Yeah, um, I feel like there may have been a time when political debates were informative. I feel like mostly now it's a caricature, caricaturization, that's a lot of syllables, um, of, of two extremes that yeah. doesn't offer a lot in the way of Oh, there's a there's some nuanced policy stuff here. There's right. something that's informative about who these candidates are as in character or anything. It just kind of feels like, yeah, this is just Twitter in person. A lot yeah. of shouting, a lot yep. of interrupting, et cetera. Yeah, that's exactly what the presidential debate was. I think the worst thing you could say about the presidential debate a couple weeks ago was that my ten year old and eight year old son were fascinated and they didn't want to go to bed. You know what I mean? Like a, like a presidential debate should be boring. You know, like it should be your eight year old should be like, can we watch YouTube right now? And they were, they were fascinated by like a little embarrassingly. So I think it was the, maybe the 2000 election. There was a presidential election in 2000. That's right. Yeah. Check my math. So I would have been, I would have been mid high school. And I remember my dad wanted me to watch it. And I made it about 15 minutes in. It was yeah. just pleading to yeah. be excused. It should be so boring. Yeah. But you did... I, did you watch it last night, Andrew? I did not. Okay. So um, last night was... I thought it was pretty good. It was... It like, was the, like in terms of the content or the behavior or both? Both. Okay. The whole thing. I mean, it was... I was like watching it and it occurred to me probably like five or 10 minutes in. Here's what occurred to me. Is there any way we can get Pence to slide in as president and Kamala Harris to slide in as vice president? I saw you post Just that. Just put I think, the on two Instagram of them in the White House and have them go run it. <laughs> now, to be fair, I don't know that much about Kamala Harris. And also, to be fair, I don't even know that much about Pence. But they, 
it's impressive to me the way that they could communicate their points in like two minutes and not have a bunch of ahs and ums and stuttering and like, you know, like, ah, let me think about this. Like they really communicated their points, honestly, really well. And it's like on the spot. And apparently they don't know the, they don't know the questions ahead of time. So they're just going for it. And they were both articulate. They were both very calm. Like you could see, like even with Kamala Harris, like she hasn't done this before at this level. Not yet. And she was just composed. And so, and I think, you know, my understanding is I know enough that, you know, you have Pence, which is on the more conservative side Mm -hmm. and Harris, which is on the more progressive side. A combination like that wouldn't be all that bad in the White House. Yeah, I I don't disagree because bipartisanship sounds really nice. You know, wouldn't wouldn't it be right. nice if we weren't all automatically enemies by political party? But it also sounds utterly idealistic. Oh, it's <laughs> from, for from where sure. we are right now. Well, for sure. And then you have people on both sides that aren't going to let that happen. Like Trump's not going to obviously. Right. This goes without saying, but neither is Biden. Like it's all about them. You well, know what I mean? And neither will the parties because it seems to me that both political parties have devolved to the point of they exist for their own self-preservation rather yeah. than having a collective sense of what's best for the country. Well, that's 100% accurate and it's 100% scary. Yeah. Because that's that's where that's where we're at now. It's all about the parties. Yeah. And they put forth that's something that I didn't really like fully grasp until more recently. They put forth someone who has the best chance of winning for mm-hmm. the sake of their party. Doesn't necessarily mean the person they're putting forth is the best person around the country. Right. It has the best best chance of winning yep. for the sake of their party so that they can impose their views on America. It's it's pretty weird. When it's and it's also how a Somebody like Donald Trump, who has not been, he hasn't been a political figure up until yep. 20, what, 15, 16, leading into the 2016 election. Yep. He, he ran for president. I don't even know if that was like, if he intended to win or if he intended right. to, to, to do something for publicity. And he attached himself to a party and the party selected him because he had the best chance to win. I think he could have just as easily done the same thing on the Democratic side because I don't know that he... I mean, I just mean in terms of like how, how he would have been responded to by a party. I agree with that. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think Democrats would have voted for him. So that, that might not have worked as well. But just in terms of, I don't think he's a politically loyal party man. No, no. I, I think agree. he's an opportunist. Exactly. And the Republicans presented the opportunity. And now they, now they are married to him. Yes. So they have to support him throughout. 100%. Yeah, for sure. That's an interesting idea is what if what if Trump would have ran as a Democrat in 2016? Because pre-2016, well, pre the decision to run, so yeah. now we're going back to 14 or whenever it would be, like, was there enough known about Trump and his values and how he operated to really assign him to a party? I would still think probably more Republican just because that tends to be the more business-friendly, tax-friendly party. So maybe that's just a natural And, you know, at at the risk of getting controversial, he I think there were things about him that were well enough known that the Democratic Party tends to be more supported by minorities in America. That's right. And Trump was... There were things about him that were known as not favorable in the minority community. So that... That, I think, probably still would have pigeonholed him into the Republicans. Yeah. My point earlier was simply just sort of the opportunist. I don't think he cared. I think he was just looking for the opportunity. Yes, I agree with that. Well, I will say this. You guys missed a good debate last night. It was well-reasoned. They came out, you know, conducted themselves in a respectful manner, both of them. 
the, both of them would be the way they conducted themselves in that hour and a half last night. It would be if my 10 year old and eight year old were watching, which they weren't, you know, you could learn from that and you could take mm-hmm. that as a bit of an example. And, um, I just thought they both communicated their thoughts extremely well. And, and I wasn't surprised either because with the backlash from the presidential debate and how just, you know, crazy that was, this did not surprise me both because it's obviously the VPs, but also right. as like a reaction to the way the first one went, I figured that's how it would play out. And it, and it really did. It really, I was fairly impressed by it, to be honest. Yeah, it makes me a little sad that we have to lead talking about a vice presidential debate by saying they behave themselves. Right. You know, you'd like that to be, that's what you, that's what you hear from the babysitter. Yeah. Your your kids behave themselves. Good. That's what we were going for. Yes. I I would like the leaders of America to start like that. I feel like that should be a baseline. It should be. Yeah, for sure. Andrew, your mic on over there. Cool. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. This is one of Andrew's, one of his first episodes. I feel honored to be on one of Andrew's first episodes. Right. It feels good to be with Barnabas and Kent as well. How good does it feel to be married finally, Andrew? It was an adjustment, but it was all <laughs> wonderful adjustments in, in every wonderful way. I think, I think it'll continue to be an adjustment. Mm, Probably, oh, yeah. but it's great though. Marriage is really good. Mm-hmm. How, um, um, what are you learning since you have been director for community at Emmanuel, Barnabas? And by the way, thank you for doing that. Oh man, I love it. I mean, you had, you were in a good position and, um, I mean, we were all, I mean, I was pumped when I first heard about the possibility of you helping out more, coming on board, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and thank you for serving the church so well, man. I mean, honestly, and I'm not, I hate when people say, and I'm not just saying that because it's like, <laughs> well, would you ever just say something? Say, so it's like, that's that not, yeah, that's not something that needs to really be, be prefaced, but you are doing a really good job, man. I mean, I hear that from multiple people. Well, so encouraging. thank you for serving the church yeah. so well. And I'm curious, what are you learning? Oh man, it feels like it has. So I've been on just over a year now. I started August of 19 and uh, it feels like it has been a, well, a roller coaster on the one hand, just because 2020 has been for everybody. Um, but also a pretty significant learning curve. Um, Cause I came on a month before the pastoral transition. So when Ray, retired and TJ took over as lead pastor. You were on before Ray retired? For about one month. Hmm. Yeah. So I came on August 1st and then Ray, Ray officially left at the beginning of September. Yeah. And it was a great month, you know, just because on his way out, Ray basically was just, here's my picture of pastoral wisdom. and I'm just going to dump it all over you guys. And uh, boy, what a great first month. Staff meetings. Staff meeting. Other- uh, yeah, the meetings with the pastors, uh, just kind of sitting in on just whatever, just kind of getting called into offices. And okay. Yeah, he just was, I mean, he's always generous, but generous with his wisdom and his time. And yeah, it, it, uh, it, was, a great, it was a great starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I knew coming on that my long-term lead pastor would be TJ. So I, you know, I joined staff with an eye towards what will it be like to serve alongside and under the leadership of TJ and had real just profound confidence that that was going to be great. And that has played out. So he's been, he's been great to work under. Um, I think the first big adjustment. So the first big thing I had to learn was how to measure success in ministry because I had been, so I'd been in publishing prior for basically since 2005, a couple, couple of, you know, different aspects of that here and there, some digital sides of things, some marketing, things like that. But, but success there is numeric. Mm-hmm. It's all numeric. So it's, it's sales, it's revenue, it's customers, it's email lists, it's conversion rates. It's, you know, just 
down the line, almost none of which applies to church, especially not when you're talking about uh, small groups, discipleship groups. There are numbers involved, but if we have 100 discipleship groups and they're really badly run, I failed. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if we have 30 discipleship groups and they're thriving, Mm -hmm. that's success. But what is thriving? How do we measure that? So, and then even how to spend time. You know, when everything is numeric based, you can kind of measure your day by the urgent tasks are the one that have the greatest effect on the bottom line, Mm -hmm. ultimately. What's the bottom line of church? It kind of varies. Some Mm -hmm. days the urgent thing is the person who calls and says, hey, I really need to meet with you about whatever crisis in life. Um, Some days it's, I have to get this email out so that the information gets to the right people so that they show up at the right event or whatever. And it, it is, it probably took me, well, right up until about the beginning of COVID to start to get comfortable with the idea that success isn't really, isn't really measurable other than in things like faithfulness, availability, um, and it's a little bit more like success as a doctor. Mm. Like if a doctor had maximum success, he would be less busy. Mm-hmm. And this, like people would just not need to come as much. There's a, there's a sense of that mm. uh, as well. Interesting. So that, but because of sin in the world, I will always have a job. Sure. Um, and so there's, uh, there's success is health, spiritual health, relational health. How are the groups doing? Are the groups multiplying? But again, not multiplication for the sake of a number, but for the sake of, for the sake of you know, developing leaders, giving opportunity to more people to be connected to the church, so forth. Um, and that's, that's been something that I, I still somewhat wrestle with. That. There are days I wake up and I go, I don't have a clear to-do list today. Mm-hmm. I have a profound sense of urgency, but I don't, like there's not a, this, this appointment, this meeting, this sales call, this yes. whatever. Um, so that, that's been an ongoing, an ongoing aspect and also learning from people who have done it poorly, not at a manual, mm. but looking around at, at people in other ministries who have attached success to the wrong things. Oh, okay. So attached success to platform growth, attendance growth, uh, giving growth, baptisms, things that are measurable, but not necessarily indicative of the the purpose of the church. Sure. Yeah. And so kind of going, well, how do I avoid that yes. and feed into a culture of, of real health in, in Christ? Yes. Do you think there's a way in a church, local church setting where you can somehow do both? Or do you think it's best just to, to stay away from all of the numbers, platform growth, et cetera, and just focus on the health of the souls and let the Lord, you know, um, I guess direct from there. Um, like, is it wrong to want to have forty small groups if we have thirty? You know, like that I, type no, of thing. I don't think it's wrong. I think it's. I think it's uh, how much weight you hang on those numbers. So, for example, it would you. I think you would be foolish as a church if you are not measuring how much money is being given, how many people are attending, you know, how many how many groups do we have? And then also tracking where are we in comparison to past years? Mm -hmm. Because we are an organization. We Mm -hmm. have to be able to handle our organizational business well. What what is our financial state? Uh, If our organization is serving a group of people, who are those people? How are we reaching them? Those kinds of things. So so numbers numbers matter. Um, 
but I would say it's akin to uh, if you attach all of your physical health to your body weight, you, you I think you've gotten it a little bit backwards. You know, yeah. so if, if you're if you're grossly overweight and unhealthy, that number really matters. Yep. But once you're kind of moderately healthy, mm-hmm. there are other things you need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. You know, what is you need to just just general healthy things in terms of how are you taking care of your heart? How are you taking you know so blood pressure, those kinds of things, diet, sleep, those kinds of things. So it's for like sustainable health. Yeah. Church is fairly similar to that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to look at it. I've never thought about it in those terms. So, but I've heard that numerous times from people that have worked at a local church. It's just this idea of, you know, maybe I was in uh, the the business world before, and they, we had metrics and mm-hmm. and strategies and quarterly things and monthly and weekly and so forth. And and uh, then you come into church and you're not exactly sure how to measure success. But now. Was that, I'm a little bit surprised here that was like an, an adjustment for you coming, ha- having, you know, grown up in church or was it just because, well, you grew up in church, but you mm-hmm. didn't, you didn't work there. And so now this is kind of, is this the first time you're working at a local church? In, in a long time. I did right okay. out of college. So okay. I, I did youth ministry right out of college and uh, youth ministry counts as working at a local church, but it it's also kind of doesn't, sure. um, at least the way that at, at that age and maturity level where yeah. I was. Um, that's not to insult youth leaders as a whole, but for me, it was a lot more, um, kind of older brothery, not, not real leadership oriented. Um, so I think it mostly just had to do with learning a pattern of behavior, pattern, pattern of mindset, pattern of behavior. So spending 14 ish years in the business world and I was in Christian publishing. So it was a, it was a ministry oriented thing, but you go out of business if you don't make a profit. So Mm -hmm there's still that business mindset. Um, that still was the, the shaping factor of success. And in, in that world, it's very, um, there's a tension there because so for a while I worked in acquisitions. So that's bringing in new books, new authors, and there's a tension there because there are books that I thought this is, this is wonderful. We can't sell it. This is a, this is a book that's absolutely worth reading and it won't sell. And you knew this you, 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 before you even tried to sell it. You just knew this is a great book and it's not going to sell. Yeah, the, the market won't bear this book kind of thing. It doesn't have a place. Or in, And then the worst aspect, the author just isn't well-known enough. Okay. So now we're getting into that platform, sure. kind of the nastiness of that that whole thing, and part of the reason why a lot of church leaders are can be addicted to that. So there's a tension there because you have to publish the books that will sell, and you decline some of the books that are worth reading, but as a Christian publisher with convictions, you also want to publish the books that are worth reading. So yeah. it, when you find those ones that converge just right, and it's, you know, you find the Tim Kellers of the world, yep, and you go, this is amazing. We just found a book that's going to sell really well, and I think everybody should read this. Yes. And that, that feels like just that's the win of all wins in, in that world. Yeah, for sure. I'm uh, on the board of an organization called Choice Books. Have you seen them in airports? Yeah. The, they have, the, have you seen them, Andrew, ever? Spin, the little spinner oh, racks. Oh, yeah, have you? Yeah, the little spinner racks. They're in like CVSs and Walmarts. I used and, to sell the Choice Books. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Um, airports and just places like that. And they, you know, we have the same tension there mm-hmm. because you want to have certain things on that bookshelf and then you also have things that just sell and it's not a great term, but there's some stuff that was like, you know, um, could be viewed as viewed as like Jesus junk. Like Mm -hmm. it's like, 
some sayings and stuff, just some things that sell. And it's like not inspirational kind just, of yeah, stuff. Inspirational yeah. stuff. And we'd much rather have, you know, something more profound, something mm-hmm. more helpful and even types of books. And, but, they don't always sell. So you got you have to like make those choices. And that is a tough thing to be in in Christian publishing for sure. Yeah. And the, the question that I always had in my mind was how much, like this is a bit of a chicken or the egg thing. If a publisher dedicated themselves to publishing only books they thought worth publishing, could they push them into selling? I don't think, I don't think they could. I think, um, I think that might've been true 20 years ago, but publishers don't really drive sales anymore. Um, they, they can influence it, but it's authors drive sales at this point. Really? For the most part. Yeah. Hmm. Which is why I was just having this conversation with, uh, with the two guys I, I co-host a podcast with who are both authors. And we were talking about how, why is it that the authors who don't need marketing dollars get all the marketing dollars from publishers? Because, you know, so my guess, I don't know who publishes, say John Grisham's books, I don't know, Penguin Random House or something. He probably gets a six-figure marketing budget attached to his new books. He does not need it. Right. His books will sell by existing because, yep. because Grisham is a marketing term. I would love to have a six-figure marketing budget for my books. I don't know that it would, I don't know that it would return on the investment, but I would love to have it. Sure, I could of sure course. Use it. Yeah. <laughs> so if publishers don't push sales now, who, who does? I mean, you have four books here, which we're going to get to certainly your newest one. Um, so you know a little bit about this. What what does sell books then? Authors develop followings, um, and that's really what publishers look for as much as anything now. They don't. Most publishers are not first and foremost making decisions based on the quality of the writing. And if you read a lot of Christian books, you'll probably nod your head and say, "Yes, that is sadly true." Um, most publishers make decisions based on the following that the author brings to the table. And then what the publisher does is try to take that. So if you look at that as a circle, they try to find like that next concentric circle out. So who are the people who should be in that crowd but are not yet? Mm-hmm. So they're going to try to market a little bit more widely. Um, so somebody like me, you know, I, I bring a limited audience as compared to like my dad. You know, my dad is John Piper and he's another one who kind of doesn't need the marketing dollars, comparatively speaking. And so... He just brings a following with him and mm-hmm. then Crossway or whoever's publishing his books is they're trying to push it out there to those who, who might not be in that, that middle circle. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it, the, the author drives it. Uh, so much of the marketing strategy rests on an author's willingness to do stuff like this. You know? Oh, okay. Are you willing to, to have all the conversations on all the podcasts? Are you willing to tweet Instagram, whatever? Yep. Uh, you know, and some authors are super willing. Some are steadfastly a heart like I just won't. Yep. And then, and then there's the the middle ground where you go, I want to, but I also don't want to, you know, go to the point where I feel like I need to go take a take a shower at the end of every day because I just right. sort of sold my soul to the marketing devil. Right. Yes, I can imagine that's a tension. But now, so there's got to be different categories here, right? So, like, if your dad, which by the way, I'm I'm sure he's still writing books. He is. Okay. So if he writes a book, he's got name recognition mm-hmm. and that's just like he's kind of kind of broken through at a certain level and he just has a certain amount of name recognition he might not have you know a hundred thousand instagram followers and he might not even have much social media but he's got name recognition in my in my but then like 
let's take you, for example, you also have a certain amount of name recognition. Is that what they're after or is it more, but yes, you also have an email list and you also have, you know, X amount of social media followers. Mm-hmm. Like, is there different kind of categories here that they, that they would look for? Yeah. I think, I think my dad could probably take one of his books to just about any publisher and unless they just didn't like him, you know, right. we, they're, they're sort of anti gospel or whatever. They would say yes, based solely on the numbers that it can deliver. You know, they would say sure. yes, we'll take on your book. That's not true for me. Yep. Um, because I have to, I have to find the right combination. If it's a book that they they're still measuring, is the book worth publishing? I don't think anybody asked that about my dad's books. Mm-hmm. I think he writes stuff worth reading. Just to clarify, but I think that the question is, it's in the past because he's written forty reliable books or something like that. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I have to go in, and if it's a new publisher, they they ask, you know, how many how many Twitter followers, how many Instagram followers, what's your Facebook reach, do you have an email, who are people you can reach out to who will endorse this, and it yeah, it really feels like a self sales pitch, sure, and it's yeah, it's kind of gross. I don't like it. Yeah, where where you have to sell yourself to the publisher, you mean? Right, feels sort of gross. Yeah, yes. I could I could imagine that for sure. I mean, but isn't it, you hear of like these stories where like someone has a great book, but they're trying to get it published and they won't because they don't have a platform, but they don't have a platform because they haven't published their book. And it's just like, you're just kind of stuck there, right? Yeah. It's like being not hired because you don't have experience and you go, how do I get experience if I can't get hired? Sure. There's a, there's a, they know it's a, it's a circular, like snake eating its tail kind of thing. Um, yeah. And then, and then there's the stories of somebody who didn't have any following, total no name. They publish a novel. And then it all of a sudden it's New York Times bestseller. Exactly. And those are you know those are the ones. It's you know here in Nashville it's the songwriter who's nobody who then gets a cut from I don't know Keith Urban or somebody. Yes. And then all of a sudden they're a name, and that's what keeps everybody going. Yes. They're like I don't have a name, but I could be the person who wrote was it Catherine Stockett who wrote the Help. Yep. Or something, and she yep. wasn't anybody. I think she was like a, a creative. It was like a project for her her MFA or something like that. Dang, that's so cool. It's, it's always fun when that happens, but you can't, you can't like, that can't be your strategy for success, right? Because that's not a reliable <laughs> yeah. strategy. It's like buying lottery tickets instead of getting a job. Right. Yes. So is writing in your family's blood? Um, in the sense that, in the sense that we all, for the, I mean, not everybody in the family, but I'd say, so I have, I have three older brothers. Um, two of them are both gifted writers. The third just doesn't care. Um, okay. he's a, he's a really gifted speaker, but my parents are both writers. Um, my dad's dad was a traveling evangelist. So okay. think like 1950s tent meetings, you know, he would show up and it was like, you know, Dr. Bill Piper and we'll be here for the revival. Cool. Um, and he wrote, but he was a really eloquent speaker. So I think his writing channeled a lot more into sermon manuscripts, things like that. I see. And, and he was a great storyteller, great joke teller, just really good communicator. So yeah, there, there is an element of it's in the blood, but then it's also in the environment. You know, I grew up in a house where there's just books on every wall mm. and we didn't have a TV because, not because my parents were morally opposed, but they just said, well, if you have a TV, we'll watch it. Right. And if we don't watch it, we can use our time for other things. Yeah. And so I read a ton of books. Okay. Um, and and you, the more you read, the, more, the easier writing comes, like the mm. more natural it is, because you're just, you're just kind of stocked up on language. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a more na- it, it becomes a more natural way to communicate, because that, that's what's communicated to you, so that's what you can kind of return. Yes. And... Yeah, so you just sort of we just sort of swam in those waters, huh. and I didn't realize it wasn't totally normal until probably college, 
when other people would just find writing, you know, a three or four page essay brutally difficult. And I would wait until like an hour before class and, uh-huh. and write it because, because I could. Yeah. And it never crossed my mind until then that this, this might be abnormal to, to kind of find writing a thing that's enjoyable and natural. Yes. So how much reading did you guys do? I'm, I'm sure it varied uh, per kid, obviously. And by the way, do you have any sisters? I have a younger no. sister. Okay. Um, so she, uh, she was adopted when okay. I was 12. Okay. So her upbringing was very different because okay. the, the boys are all about three years apart. So three years between each of us and then a 12 year gap. And then she joined the family. And so both being the only girl and being separated by that amount of age, she had almost an only child sure. experience. Yeah. Whereas I had the like doormat of the family experience. Gotcha. So yeah. five kids. Yep. So is this like you guys were bookworms or it's like instead of watching TV, you know, for an hour a day or 30 minutes, you would read a little bit or like how, exi- how extreme was this reading? It was never, I don't remember being assigned. It was just sort of like, okay. My, you know, if, if we ever said we were bored, my mom was basically like, draw a picture, read a book, go outside. Yeah, nice. And it was just kind of like, the, those, you have options, go do yep. them. Yep. And, <laughs> and so, it, you know, and then like if we were sick and stayed home from school, we didn't get babied. My mom was like, sick is not a thing to enjoy. Sick mm-hmm. is a thing to get over. Yep. So you're going to lie in your bed and you can have a book. And like, so it was just sort of like the thing that filled up the gaps of yeah. life, but I enjoyed it. So we enjoyed it to varying degrees. My oldest brother, he's a, he teaches literature now. So he clearly like books, words, language are his, he loves it. Um, my second brother hated books, hmm. just not his thing. And then the third was kind of somewhere in the middle, read, but wasn't, wasn't crazy about it. And I'm the type, like every, every week we'd go to the library and I'd like max out whatever limit my mom gave me. Um, so return the ones that I had read and get the new ones. Okay. Just, I just loved reading. Yeah. But loved sports, loved being outside. And so those yep. were, yeah, it was like, like I said, re- draw a picture, read a book, go outside. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely steal that and use that with our kids because there was just a guy on here yesterday, Tom Woodard, who kind of made the point that boredom essentially breeds creativity mm-hmm. and he's so right like right now with kids with between ipad tv xbox youtube everything going on um i mean if you don't let them get bored they're not going to be bored so you have to like set set some boundaries around that stuff and give yeah. them some space to get bored so they want to go out and play a little or something yeah boredom is really just indecisiveness mm-hmm. it's it's like blank space during which you're indecisive. The moment you make a decision, you stop being bored. I was bored. Now I'm going to ride my bike. I was bored. Now I'm going to climb a tree. Well, now you're not bored anymore. You're doing something fun. And so it's just, yeah, it's kind of helping them figure out how to make a decision to use their time. And you take away the, the, the default options. Yes. So is, does your dad, would you consider your dad a better speaker or writer? And what's his preference? Um, what's funny, I, I think his, his preference growing up would have been right. He was terrified of public speaking until late in college. Like the kind of terrified that was like caused, would cause physical illness, borderline like vocal paralysis. No way. Yeah, it's, he, he's, he's written and shared about it. I mean, it was, it was really a, like, like a hand of the Lord on his, on his life. Wow. Maybe it was before his junior or senior year in college. He, uh, he got asked, the chaplain just stopped him. He, was, he went to Wheaton College, so Christian College. The chaplain asked him, one day just walking across campus, hey, John, would you pray in chapel? And he said yes before he could think about it and then was 
just agonized over it for the days leading up to it. And, uh, he basically, I think he just sort of made a deal with God. I think I'm trying to remember exactly. I think he said, God, if you help me do this, I will never turn down another opportunity out of fear again, mm. another speaking opportunity. And I believe to this day he's, he's done that. He's like, I've turned things down, but never because I'm afraid. Sure. You know, doesn't fit my schedule. Not the right, that's not a group that I can devote time to, whatever, but not out of fear. So yeah, he, he was definitely more of a writer at mm. that point. And you can, he, he speaks like a writer too. Like he's a, okay. he's a fiery speaker, but everything is so crafted. Yes. So articulate. He doesn't, okay. he doesn't off the cuff. He doesn't like doing off the cuff okay. because he, well, two reasons. One, because he really likes to prepare and think about things in advance. And two, he says, I don't know what I'm going to say if I don't have it written down. And that's when I get myself in trouble. So, yeah. Interesting. So very similar to Ray in that regard. Yeah. Ray is the most scripted speaker, I think, I've personally encountered. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about it is he is super experienced. I mean, he's 70, 71 years old. Mm-hmm. And you take a family gathering, for example, if anyone could just jot down a, you know, a couple of bullet points and just go for it on the spot, it'd be Ray. Yeah. But I mean, I've seen him script stuff for family gatherings. I mean, it's, and that's been instructive to me because to me, what I get from that is I get a sense of high regard for people's time. And if we're going to get people together and ask them for their time, then we're going to make good use of it and we're not going to waste a minute of it. Yeah, and that and and that comes through. That's that's the same lesson I picked up uh more from Ray than from my dad mainly because um people ignore their parents. I probably should have learned it from yeah. my dad. But yeah, the idea that it's so I, you know, I've been asked to pray in service before and my inclination would be to walk up there and pray. But it's absolutely worth every minute of the time spent sitting down and thinking about a passage of scripture and what are just, I don't need to script the prayer necessarily, but like, what are the things that I want to make sure I pray through? Yes. And it's cohesive. It's not rambling. You don't repeat yourself. You, you, yeah, you honor people's time. And I think there's an, especially in a corporate worship setting, that's, that's honoring to the Lord too, because it's, it adds an element of um, cohesion. Yes. You're not sort of a stumbling block or stumbling over your words in the middle of a service. Yes. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Because my background could potentially be a little bit more similar in your... So you were... It was a Baptist church Mm -hmm. you came from. Is that correct? And um, this may not... I'm sure there's differences among all of the different types of Baptists to begin with and so forth. But um, I feel like the scripted or liturgy, that type of thing, that would be a little bit more high church, Anglican, Presbyterian, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. And then maybe less common in some of the Baptist circles and certainly less common with, with, with my circle, which was like Anabap- like Mennonite, so which is mm-hmm. a, a part of the Anabaptists. And I feel like um, where kind of the my angle would have been a little bit more is maybe a little bit more emphasis on like the spirit and in the moment and being led in the moment and those types of things and like reading a prayer Oh, it would be totally fine, by the way. Like at the church I grew up with, if someone read a prayer, that would be fine. It's just, it doesn't happen all that much because I feel like it's a little bit more about the spontaneity and so forth. So um, is that how your upbringing would have been as well? And what are your thoughts on adjusting to a little bit more of a of a pre-thought, what, what some would say, less in the moment? And I hate to use the term less spirit-led because the spirit can lead you when you're thinking it through the day yeah. before, just like he can lead you in right. the moment. But what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I think, uh, so the church I grew up in was Baptist, but it wasn't, 
don't think like, you know, white wooden country Baptist church. It was, we, we were reformed theologically. Um, and that informs a lot because the reformed theological tradition is going to be a little bit more tied to, to that uh, kind of lean a little bit more high church or at least a little bit more structured and formal yeah. because of the kind of the gravitas and seriousness that they give to elements of the church service. So we had a little bit more of that feel. Um, there was the occasional sort of, um, call and response kind of thing. So okay. for, you know, leader reads a portion of a Psalm congregation, reads something in return. The pastoral prayer was, uh, I don't know how scripted they always were, but it was, you know, it was, it was more of a formal thing. The pastor is praying, kind of leading people into the presence of God. Um, but it certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't, uh, kind of liturgical in, in full, mm-hmm. And so, you know, unlike a lot of, you know, your kind of middle of the road, Southern Baptist churches, for example, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of casual anything in our church. Mm. Also, my dad's just not a casual person. And he, Mm. he has a, uh, I don't know if abhorrence is too strong of a word, but it's pretty close for, for trite things in worship. And so Mm. like every moment matters and he, he treated it as such. And so, and, and ask the rest of the, the, the musical worship leaders, the people praying, et cetera, to do the same. And so there mm-hmm. was a, a formality to it that, that kind of belied the, the Baptistness. Yes. Did he structure his, I mean, I've seen service orders for Emmanuel and it's, I mean, it's down to the, like the second, it's like, yeah. you know, this song is three minutes and 26 seconds or whatever. And then it's like, it's real, it's real structured. And of course, and Forgive the garbage truck in the background, by the way. <laughs> no, there's, a, there's a lot going on. Is, there, is, that a meta, yeah. is that a metaphor for this podcast? <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a garbage truck right now. And Andrew, I don't know what we're going to run into because I think the uh, building next door got sold a couple of months ago. So it's possible at some point we're going to be dealing with construction here. Demolition. Maybe de- demolition, pulling <laughs> it's down like the building. being back at Belmont all over again. Right. What, what was a lot of construction going on? Well, yeah, we had, uh, when I was at Belmont, uh, the president is Bob Fisher. And when I was a student there from 2010 to 2014, he was, he was affectionately known as Bob the Builder because, of, <laughs> he, kept because he kept knocking down student dormitories and building eight or nine story student halls in those places. And a lot of those buildings required um, dynamite in the ground. And a lot of students would be woken up, me included, by that dynamite going off at 8 a.m. in the morning every weekday. That'll do it. Um, yeah. I used to live next to a rock quarry. It's a bit disorienting until you figure out what this earthquake is twice a day Dang. or something. Yeah. But anyhow, the Emmanuel service is very, it's very structured. And uh-huh. if something were to happen that's clearly Holy Spirit led, TJ's not going to just be like, you know, no, it's time to move on to this. I mean, right. there's obviously there's room for that, but there's a lot of thought that goes in. Is that how, a little bit more how your, your yeah. church would have been? Uh, especially once, especially once technology advanced to the point of any sort of streaming. Um, when oh. I was in high school and college, we went to multi-site, and so there was video recording. And for a while, they they did a live uh, satellite stream of the sermon into the other one. So it had to be to the second. I Every, see. Everybody hated it because there wasn't okay. there wasn't the space for. Let's let's go through the song one more time because the spirit's working on people. So mm-hmm. you know you couldn't linger at all. Um, but yeah, it was more like structured elements with some some breathing room in there. I see. And then of course, um, my dad is not known for brevity in his preaching. So he, uh, especially in the la- whatever the last service of the day is, 
he might feel the spirit leading to go, I don't know, 12 minutes longer than <laughs> just. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, 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 the occasional like 47 minute sermon was not uncommon. 50 minutes. Okay. Growing up. I think he, okay. He got tighter as time went on, but, but not like an hour and a quarter very often, or he might've cleared an hour here and there. It was pretty rare. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We're not, he, he, he did recognize the law of diminishing returns on this thing. Okay. You know, and he, he, he told a story one time where there was a dear old lady in our church who was, you know, just a faithful member had been since before he got there and he was preaching. He was going on like, you know, minute 48. She just stands up and taps her watch. No. Yeah. I mean, just the kind of thing that you can do when you're 80 like, what are you going to yeah. say to me? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and he was younger as a preacher then, so she was twice his age. Sure. And just, could, she just stood up, tapped her watch, and was like, wrap this thing up. That's funny. Pot roast is cooking. Oh, man. That would be hard as a, as a speaker. Hopefully, he was, like, secure enough to, like, just push on or do what needed to be done, you know? It'd be hard just not to be like, ah, right, we're, we're done here. Y'all can finish this service yourself. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, we read the text. You're good. Yeah, exactly. Um and that, and that, so the church you grew up in was Bethlehem Baptist, mm-hmm. and I don't know actually a lot about it. S- single location, multiple locations. You mentioned streaming out to other satellite locations. Yeah. So growing, so my dad took over as the pastor there in 1980, um, which was I was born in 83. So he'd been the pastor there for three years before I was born. And at that point, it had a just a single downtown Minneapolis location. It had it. Its former name was First Swedish Baptist Church, very Minnesotan. Um, Where does the Swedes come from? Is there a lot of Swedes up there? Yeah, Swedes and Norwegians, huge, huge no, percentage of yeah, the population in Minnesota, big Scandinavian population. Minneapolis, or Minneapolis in particular or Minnesota? Minnesota, yeah. Oh, I mean, it makes sense. They found the coldest, iciest sure. place they could. They're like, oh, it feels like Norway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so, like, for... Not they. They were still doing Swedish language services into the '60s and '70s. So oh, not wow. not too long before my dad got there. Um, so he took over, and it was a church of three or four hundred people, and very old. Like the congregation trended very old. I think my dad said he averaged a, a funeral a week for his first year, year and a half. Wow. Um, which he said was miserable and difficult, and like the best pastoral school. Just in terms of sure. caring for people, walking through things, learning how to preach the gospel in a difficult context and so forth. Um, and then just faithfully led the church. And so over time, you know, brought on some other staff who were a little bit younger, family started to come. Um, and so the church just very steadily grew. It never, it never had like a peak year where it just doubled or tripled in size. It just kind of percentage by percentage grew. Um, so that when I was in high school, late nineties, early two thousands, it was probably 2000 people, okay. 1800, 2000 people, something like that. And that's when they started a second campus. Um, so single church, second campus, uh, in the North suburbs. And it took them a while to figure out the best way to do video, video based preaching, um, so they tried the satellite thing for a while, didn't like the restrictiveness or the uh, unpredictability, you know, it could cut out in the middle and then sure. like, who's, who's, who's got, who's playing backup. Um, so then they went to just, a, they would, they, then they did a Saturday night service, recorded the sermon, played that at the second location and he would rotate between them. So he was live at one location every other Sunday. I see. And then after a few years, they started a third location in the South suburbs and similar thing rotating through. And actually, I think 
they are in the process of doing the same thing that the Village Church did uh, in Texas, so Matt Chandler's church, where the locations are now being spun off as independent churches. Yes, um, and not as a not like a church split, but just a this is it's healthier contextually. Each there's some very distinct differences in the demographics and whatever between campuses. Um, so the north the north campus will be an independent church. The downtown one will be an independent church, and I think the south one will as well. I don't think they're staying mm-hmm. attached. Um, and I don't know what the time frame on that is, but mm-hmm. so it's been an interesting arc from yeah. a church where there's a bunch of little old ladies and we knew everybody to yeah. three campuses to now a little bit more concise. Yes, and my dad retired from the pastorate in 2013, um, but is still a member there and. He, uh, similar, to, similar to what Ray is like at Emmanuel, he has, there's a, he takes, he keeps his distance from the decision making, mm-hmm. um, both formally and informally, you know, like there's an agreement that he's not going to go, you know, try to cast a long shadow, Sure, but, but yeah, still an invested church member still attends, um, and is still connected with the, the college that they started in the seminary and I see. so does some teaching there and yeah, yeah. 2013, I didn't know it was that long ago. Speaking of preference for uh, speaking or writing, my understanding is that your preference is writing, but you're also a very good speaker. What? How, how do you? What's your? Where do you think your sweet spot is there? What's your personal preference? I think it depends on format. Um, hmm. So for I, I really enjoy speaking, but that that feels more concise to me. You know. 30 minutes here, 40 minutes there, 20 minutes here. It's sort of a, it's, you have to, you have to be, you know, earlier we were talking about scripting things for using time well. Whereas writing, you know, you write 160 pages to, to take a single idea and flesh it out. Um, so they, they feel like very different things to me. Mm. And I think there's probably kinds of speaking I'm not as good at. Like I don't have as much experience formally preaching, mm-hmm. you know, walking through a book of the Bible to, to, to preach through. And I think preaching is a just not just walking through a book of the Bible, but preaching is a different mode of verbal communication. Sure. Than teaching yeah. is. You Absolutely. Know, teaching is helping people understand. Preaching, there's a there's a declarative um prophetic authoritative voice to it, mm-hmm. which is different. And mm-hmm. I don't think everybody's called to it either. Um, everybody who can speak is not called to it. Right. So yeah, there's, I'd say speaking is something that I really enjoy and probably am still figuring out where my, what would my sweet spot be for that? I see. Yeah. Writing is something that I feel like I've found a little bit more clarity on. This is, this is a kind of thing that I can do well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I can branch out, but I, I have more confidence that if you said write on this, I could say, okay, if okay. you said speak on this, I'd, I'd need to work harder at it. That's interesting because to, because if you could write on it, you know, in theory, you could then speak on it. Right. I mean, if you're going to be, do you write out, you know, your, your talks, if you're going to talk somewhere, do you write it out pretty word for word? Or? No. And I think that's why I would need to work harder. I like outlines, okay. which means I have to know the stuff. Sure. So outlines yeah. and, I'd, you know, fairly built out ones, but also just there's some gaps in there that I need to fill in with whatever it is that I know. Yeah. Whereas in writing, you fill in all the gaps. Yeah. Yep. You know, and yep. you, you edit it tightly, and that's that's a different thing. Um, and so I think you have to know the same amount either way, but you, you also get trial and error when you're writing. You don't when you're speaking. Right. If you, if, if you have error, you just 
it just didn't go well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have error and write it. You just hit backspace a few times and it never happened. Yep. You're totally right about that. Um, I was curious with your role a year and a month as director for community manual. I mean, communication in general, which is kind of what we're talking about here. I mean, that's important if you're going to be a director for community, obviously. What are you, have you noticed some things that are, that don't work so good or that do work that you've noticed or have, have you learned things about the human nature <laughs> <laughs> since you're yeah. in that role with Emmanuel? Um, it's an interesting thing because church is very optional. So communication from a church it feels like a perpetual challenge because people don't have to read it. They don't have to care. They don't have to pay attention. And you don't want to flip the other way where you're kind of gimmicky and trying to get people's attention, kind of overselling right. or, or over, you know, over anything. Um, so trying to create a context where people think your communication is worthy of their attention is hard. So COVID exacerbated that because we didn't have certain options for communication. Everything, everything boiled down to the digital. Right. So I mean, you can phone call, but if you're trying to, if you're trying to, you know, connect with a hundred people, a phone call is not very efficient. Um, and so it, it's emails, it's text messages, it's videos that you're then trying to communicate to people through social media or through an email. And you just end up in this little digital circle and you yeah. but if somebody doesn't want to open it, they never know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so that that has been a challenge um, just in terms of people's psyche. And COVID has also made people, I think, real tired of all digital communication. Mm-hmm. We're addicted to our phones, but we're also real sick of them. Yeah, and, true. And so, you know, responses to emails are worse. Um, open rates on things have, haven't, you know, gotten any better. Or, mm-hmm. there, so there's there's just a... I think there's just a fatigue mm. of, of that kind of communication. Um, so then you end up in the place where you're like, well, let's try to figure out how to communicate with them in person. It might not be safe to gather them in person. If we do, how do we get them there without communicating digitally? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> how do you invite true. somebody yeah. if, if you can't get a hold of them? Yep. So th- those kinds of things have, have created a, a cycle of occasional communication frustrations. Yeah, um, yeah and then I think figuring out how people respond to different things. I prefer very succinct communications. Yes. I want bullet points. Yeah, me too. Life should just be bullet points, honestly. Yeah. Just especially (laughs) if it's about details on something. Yeah. Just be like, here are the details on this event and then just bullet points. And then if you want to write like a lengthy thing at the bottom, that's how we feel. Just it's it. And I feel like a lot of communication is a little bit like going to like a food blog. Like I just want the recipe for the red beans and rice, but I have to read through the person's life story and how it connects to their Enneagram number yep. and why their children love this and how they tried it four times and it failed. I don't care about any of that. Yeah. I just want the recipe. So my inclination is just the recipe. Yeah. But a lot of people really like the stuff. It's true. They like the story. They yep. like the the kind of written and whether it's encouragement or uh, the, what feels a little bit like puff piece to me mm-hmm. is not puff piece to a lot of people. It's meaningful. Yeah. Yep. So I need to I need to figure out how to communicate in a way that's meaningful to others. Right. Not just what I would prefer. Yeah. And, that well, can and, be a and that's the trick when it's something like church too, because you got to figure out how to best communicate to the mass, because you're not going to write an email for every single person. Yeah. So knowing. 
this email is going to go out to some people who prefer bullet points. Some people are going to prefer much more information. You got to figure out the most effective way to craft one email or one message for the for for everyone yeah. and kind of figure out the most effective way. It's going to be less than ideal for some and, you know, less than ideal for others. It's just the way it's going to, and then others is going to be like right on, but that's just the way communication works. But yeah, I'm, I'm just a uh, communication in a church setting <laughs> seems hard because then you also don't want to, even if you're meeting in person, I know Ray and TJ are very careful about this. They don't want all the announcements right. across the pulpit, and I think that's very, very wise. So you still got to figure out, even if you're meeting in person, how you're going to communicate some things. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though, with when you look at the state of the church, which is a very broad thing, I guess, because it's like, well, what church are we talking about? But the state of church in America today... Yeah. Um, what are you seeing? Like, are you seeing certain trends? Are you seeing certain things that are good, bad? I'm just kind of curious, you know, you grew up in church um, and were a pastor's kid and your grandfather was an evangelist, which Mm -hmm. I didn't know. Uh, And then you were at Lifeway, which is Christian publishing. And now you're at Emmanuel. I mean, this is definitely a space that you're in. I'm just kind of curious what you're seeing. That's a, yeah, that's a a big question. Um, it's easy to go to the discouraging right now um, because it, there's a lot of overt ugliness. Um, I think the polarization <clears throat> that surrounds church right now, and when I say polarization, I mean debate over masks, you know, thinking specifically of, um, for example, the way that it's been handled by John MacArthur's church in California. And I don't say, I don't throw him out there to, to throw stones, but just to, as an example mm-hmm. of one polarized extreme. Um, and then there are other churches that are still not gathering in person. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have these extremes. And that, that's just a statement that those extremes exist, but the, the animosity of one extreme to the other or the judgment, um, you're not meeting because you are in fear you are meeting because you're careless and don't care about people, both of which are probably false characterizations, or maybe there's a hint of truth there. I don't really know. I don't want to be the one to make that judgment call. Um, I think that's discouraging. The and then, but, but a lot of that comes from within the church. The way people bring a polarized, antagonistic mindset to church, because that's what's, that is, that is the environment in which we live politically, Right. Um, social media, everything, everything falls along a, a right or wrong line. It, uh, there, there's, there's very little room for nuance in people's minds, mm-hmm. very little room for holding things open-handedly. You know, the idea that I believe this, you believe that yet we are still brother and or sister in Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, like we we're only good at, I hold this to be my conviction. So you should too. Right. And, or you're, you're wrong or you're a coward or whatever. Um, and I think that's that mentality. I read an article or part of an article the other day that was talking about how it just looked numerically and said the average American watches something like four to seven hours of news a week. Something oh, I like bet that. It's way more than that. Well, that probably also includes people like me who never watch the news, sure. but we're on social media and we get all of our news that way. Yeah. Um, so, but how many Americans spend half that amount of time doing anything with their church? Mm -hmm. 
Now, and if you just go to television, it's way more than four to seven hours. Like that was just news. Yeah, true. And true. so the, the basically the statement was whether or not you want to believe this, people are being discipled by media sources. Mm-hmm. And I don't personally look at media and say, you know, fake news, they are the enemy, but they're not Christian. They're mm-hmm. not discipling people in a meaningful spiritual way. So there is a right. problem there. And so that's what the church is up against. People who are bringing in the discipleship of MSNBC, Fox News, uh, Drudge Report, yep. pick your favorite pick your favorite news source, and, and the methodology of the talking heads. Yes. And that's how we now view church, the church body, controversies in the church, things we don't like in the church. And it, it's contentious. Yes. Um, so that's the negative. I, mm-hmm. see, I see that just tendency kind of across the board that, that that's people's more and more their default. Um, the positives, though, are there are just so many churches and church movements that are dead set on declaring the gospel. And they're just trying to figure out how to do it well. And different, different uh, contexts, different sized churches, different, uh, you know, demographics. But there's, there are, the Bible-believing church is not dying. Right. You know, when you hear about declines in churches, if you look at that closely, it's almost always mainline denominations where the Bible has taken a backseat. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear about young people walking away from the church, it's usually disconnection to scripture in their church and in their family life that leads to that. Statistically speaking, there are a lot, you know, that's not to put, I'm not trying to guilt parents there. Yeah. Um, when the Bible takes center stage, the church does pretty well, despite all of our, <laughs> all of our disparities and dissension and, and failures and, and so forth. Yeah. You know, I have the gut reaction when I hear about prominent evangelical leaders falling into sin, you know, sexual sin, financial sin, being a bully sin, whatever, to think kind of doom and gloom thoughts. Jesus has been dealing with this for 2,000 years, you know? Yes. You read the Old Testament, like he picked his people and then he put kings in place and they were by and large just utter failures. Yeah, it's true. And he remained faithful to them and then he sent his savior to the same people. And so I, I feel like there's a lot of reasons for hope there. But yeah, just the, the, the church that remains faithful is doing just fine. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, that's a thing that I have to come back to regularly when I start to get kind of angry, angsty, stressed, panicky, or, you know, we get a handful of angry emails. Yes. Now, Emmanuel has it remarkably well in terms of the, the graciousness of the people who are part of our church. Like we don't, our leaders are really well encouraged for the most part. Um, but they, you know, still get some criticism here and there and those can be really discouraging things. And then I go, but you know, if we if we stay faithful, Jesus has proven himself to be to carry his his people through, yes. and I don't think he's going to stop now. Yeah, that's that's a good word, and 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 I do, I do sometimes have negative thoughts too about how polarized things are, and with the digital age and social media, and where things are politically, and and how things are racially charged, and everything mm-hmm. kind of coming together, and thinking. 
boy, this is a very, like, this is unprecedented time, and how's this going to pan out? Well, I mean, it's like Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, it's not like there's anything going on right now that, like, the Lord can't handle Uh or that hasn't played out in the past. I mean, when you look at history, I mean, what was it, 50 plus 20? I mean, what, 70, 75 years ago, we were battling Nazi Germany? I mean, that's not that long ago. That is not that long ago. And... And Jesus walked this earth, you know, two, about two thousand years ago. Yeah. So, and that was seventy five years ago. It's not like right. it's not like anything that's happening right now is particularly. I mean, when you look at the course of history, it's not like anything that's happening right now is particularly dangerous. Although it's still very unique to our time, yeah. and there are very real unique challenges. And thank God, Jesus Christ is still king. Yes. So that is, yeah. I think I think one of our biggest. Um, the biggest change that that we have faced from those past years, so like you said, 75, 80 years ago, World War II, uh, you know, 50, 55 years ago, civil rights movement. Right. That, we know lots of people who are a lot older than that. Like they mm-hmm. lived through it. Yeah. They remember it. And what we face today is is a is an extension of that in terms of the the racial divisions and and the the push for justice there. Um what I think is so different for us today is awareness. In my pocket, I have a device that makes me aware of every single terrible thing that's happening around the world. And that is never, that is a, that is an, that's unprecedented. Yes. Negativity, fallenness, contention, lawlessness, terrible leaders, wars, none of it's unprecedented. Yep. The ability to know about all of it in the space of five minutes mm-hmm. is, and we're not designed for that. Yes. We are not designed to process the terror that the world holds across the globe. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we're, we're, you know, when the Bible says bear one another's burdens, it's in the context of a, of a local church. It's in the yep. context of you're aware of each other's burdens, each other's pain. So when we're supposed to weep with those who weep, there's a, there's a context for that. And I don't, I don't think we're designed to try to like, um, to broad, kind of broadcast our grief across the world or sure. bear the burdens of the world. That's God's job. Yeah, for sure. Which sounds callous to say, because like, well, not my job. No, we we have a job. Yep. But it's real defined. Yep. It's a local job. Yeah. The um, two people have mentioned just in the last week the there's a, a, a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. I've heard and, about this. I haven't yeah, seen so it. Yeah, so I keep hearing about it. Still haven't seen it. I'm going to watch it. I just checked, actually, Andrew, today, and because I had watched one documentary within the last six, eight months that had to do with social media, and it definitely wasn't this one. So I have not seen The Social Dilemma yet, but I'm, I'm interested to check it out. Apparently, it's people that have been involved with creating social media. Some of these leaders are now questioning whether this is a good thing or not. Yeah, I think it was workers at, at Facebook and maybe Twitter and Google. Okay. And yeah, just the, the way that those companies intentionally kind of hook people and yes. control them. Yep, Yeah. exactly. What do you have here, Andrew? This was a book that a uh, few people at Emmanuel had told me about. It's kind of related to uh, Barnabas's comment about we have this device in our pockets. It's a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. I haven't actually read it yet, but I mean, the premise is in the title. Um, uh, it talks about how the, the, the phone and the smartphone, the modern smartphone, has, not, has become part of us in such a way that it's fully integrated into the daily patterns of our lives, never offline 
always within reach. Basically, it's now a tool that almost makes us like God in yeah. a way. Yeah. And over time, it's now we're, we're starting to slowly see how we don't have, we can't be God. And that's yep. obviously that's the long, sad story of the human race is <laughs> we try to yes. be God. What was the first lie in the garden? You will be like God if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And um, the smartphone is just another manifestation of that. Yeah. And it's, I've heard it's a great book. It's by Tony uh, Rinke. Uh, so I've heard of this book. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I know Tony. He, okay. um, he works for Desiring God, which is my dad's ministry. And oh, really? Tony's a great guy. And okay. he is a... He's, he's an incredibly careful thinker, and mm-hmm. when he decides to write on a topic, he, he didn't come up with these 12 ways like in a blog post. This is a, like a, a researched, thoughtful thing that's going to look at kind of the soul of the issue. So yeah. it's, yeah, he's, uh, I've been afraid to read this because I don't want to be convicted. Right. I'm 100% sure it would make me change some things about my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the is, well, that's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I share your I share your uh, I've heard of this book. I also haven't read it, so we're all the, we're all kind of sharing misery here, <laughs> but <laughs> um, maybe sharing some some conviction. But um, this guy lives in Minneapolis. I think he lives in Arizona now. Oh, uh, okay. He got uh, he got sick of the Minnesota winters and moved his family south. Smart man. Yeah. Well, if you ever know that he's going to be through Nashville, we need to get him on the podcast because that would be a fascinating discussion for sure and and phones have it now where it's almost like we're scared of ai you mm-hmm. know like like have you have you seen any of like what um elon musk is into with neural link and stuff is like you a cut a bit. hole in the skull yeah. and put something in there and then someone who had some brain damages now they can move their arm because this neural link thing is firing your brain in a way that hadn't been before and it's like and at some point maybe we get to communicate with each other without actually saying words because like my neural link can communicate with your neural link and like we just have this sort of understanding without having to talk to each other, which a lot of that stuff sounds kind of crazy. And even when you get into AI, you know, like, well, the robot's going to take over the world and everything. And, and that's like, that's an advanced discussion, but let's just be honest, this phone never leaves my re- rarely leaves my reach. Now at night I'll put on the kitchen counter. Yeah. But, you know, there again, it's playing music on the Sonos, which I'm listening to, you know, like, right. and when it sleeps, it's by, it's, it's within arm's reach. And mm-hmm. when I'm working throughout the day, I don't like it in my pocket. So I like to keep it, you know, I don't want some thing happening a couple of years was like everyone that had their phone in their pocket all the time, all of a sudden has like a cancer spot. So I always <laughs> have it out if possible. It's a rise in hip cancer. But it's. I communicate through it. I receive information through it. Yeah. It affects my thinking. I tell it what to do. It helps me know what to do. I mean, this is AI. Let's be yeah. honest. We already have like a computer chip. It's not implanted in our brain, but it's basically found its way into the human experience already. Yeah. Yeah, it really has. Everything that we're talking about reminds me of the line from Jurassic Park. It was Jeff, Jeff, Gold, it was Jeff Goldblum's line where he said, you were so busy thinking about whether you could do it, you never stop to think whether you should Yeah, about creating dinosaurs. I feel like a lot, I feel like yes. maybe Elon Musk should listen to that line. Yeah. <laughs> Go well, watch Jurassic Park. But Yeah. Well, the social media guy should have listened to that. Yes. I think social media is, I mean, I guess we'll see what happens with the AI and the Neuralink stuff, but that to me sounds, seems a little bit more like the Neuralink thing. It's looking at here's problems in society. How can we fix this? How can we make people's lives better that have brain dysfunction or yeah. Alzheimer's, those types of things? Social media is a little bit more like, oh, wouldn't this be cool? And it just explodes. And next thing you know, 
it's like like Sam Harris said, um, we're all involved with this psychological experiment that no one signed, no one gave permission to be a part of, and we don't yet know how it's going to turn out. Yeah, that's what's happening right now. Yeah, um, there's no controls, no parameters. Yeah, that's right. Masks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> help me to understand. Okay. You know, and I'm serious because, like, I generally have not had this conversation much, but mm-hmm. like, I am curious. Just to think objectively, looking in on this, if we could just remove ourselves from it, and if we were aliens looking in, and there was this pandemic that was happening, and it came from this side of the globe and wound up over here because people travel on airplanes, and it passes through respiratory um, when you talk, you have little spittles that come out, of mm-hmm. course. Everyone knows this. No one disagrees with this. This particular type of you know, disease, virus, whatever, is it, it likes to kind of latch onto these spittles when people talk. And if I breathe what you kind of breathed on me or talk, like I'm going to get the virus if you had it, those types of things. So if you, but if you put like this cloth in front of your face or carry around this shield all, at all times, that's a way that you can protect other people if you happen to have the virus. Like that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, now an argument against that could be yes, but no one really knows the science. And back in February and March, they definitely didn't know the science. There was kind of a, he said, she said type of thing going on. And then next thing you know, it got politicized and now we can't, now we can't step back from this having a political kind of, yeah. uh, because things happen like that. Things get like, that. that's just a human nature thing. That's not even a 2020 thing, but like when something gets branded, it's hard to get unbranded. Yes. And I yes. feel like the mass sort of got politically branded now we can't unbrand it but can you help me to understand what is the best argument for these folks that would be basically be like never maskers like what's going on man i i struggle with that and because because I, i i struggle to put myself in their shoes and i'm not I would say i'm a like i'm a scientific neutral on the masks i don't have any idea how well they work um i since I don't have any idea, I feel like minorly inconveniencing myself for a potential good is, is a good idea. Also, uh, for the mental well-being of those around me, especially in, in gatherings. So when we meet for church or in public places, those kinds of things. That's okay. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have any idea how well it's working. But if somebody else feels like it's working and they have peace of mind because of it, it's still worth it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side of that is, I think there are I think there are some people who steadfastly believe that masks don't work because they latched onto it. By and large, though, I think it is it's a it's very similar to um, like a gun control debate, where the my right to, in this case, not wear a mask, in another case, to bear arms, is inviolable. You have no right to tell me to do this thing. And so the right is the highest good. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a hard time defending that because I, I think rights are, you know, a legal right is not the same thing as a moral right. Mm-hmm. And, um, or an, an ethical right or a good decision. And so, yes, I think... In most cases, there's a lot of places people have a legal right not to wear masks. I don't think that makes it a 
a moral right or, or the moral best. And I think that's the mm-hmm. thing. Is I think as Christians, if somebody is not a Christian, having this argument with them is very difficult because the only, the only way that I, I look at it and I go, this, this should be the standard to which we hold ourselves is something I think, I think you have to be submitted to Christ to really buy into. And that is we, we are willing to lay down our rights and our conveniences for the good of others. And if they were to say, well, we don't know if it's for the good of others, they may be right. Mm-hmm. The perceived good of others, the peace of mind of others, and the peaceability of, of the whole. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's the body of Christ or society, I mean, if there would, there would be significant just peaceableness to make up a word if people were willing to say, I'll inconvenience myself slightly by breathing through cloth. Um, but the rights, the right, personal right, independent right, don't tell me what to do right, don't tread on me right, is the highest good in mm-hmm. their mind, I think. Um, and I was just having this conversation with somebody else today who's closely related to somebody who's a, a steadfast, no-mask person. And he made the observation, the, the guy I was talking to, um, the accusation of many of the people on the no mask side is that we're living in fear if we wear masks, especially within the Christian community. Like, have faith, don't live in fear. That's the thing. You yeah, can hear that. That's the thing. You oh, know, we okay. should we should not we shouldn't be living in fear to to be to to self isolate to social distance to wear masks are, are marks of fear. There's probably an element of truth in that. As a, a virus that has killed two hundred thousand Americans causes a lot of fear. Um, but what he observed though, is that their refusal to wear a mask is also a sign of fear because they're fearing state control of something. They're fearing being told what to do. They're fearing, you know, if they can mandate this, what will they mandate next? And so there's sort of a, a fear of giving over control. So this, this little action is trying to kind of maintain a control as a precedent, I think, although they may, they, I'm sure they wouldn't articulate it just that way. Um, cause they would say, we're not afraid. See, mm-hmm. um, so that, that's the best I can do at sorting this out. Um, the more I think about it though, the more I think this is not an argument anybody will win unless we agree to a greater good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at Emmanuel, we ask people to wear masks and we're not shy about it. Not because we want to argue about the science of masks, but because we look around and we say, this is a way to be unified, to care for others. If somebody is in fear, not wearing a mask is not going to change their mind. Wearing a mask could give them peace of mind. Sure. That's serving somebody. Yeah. So would, would you serve in this way? Would you care for somebody in this way? Yeah. Because there's a good that's greater than our rights. Yep. Yep. And I, I think that's, I think we have to come back to that or we don't have a compelling argument. Yeah. I just think it's a, it's sort of a fascinating discussion because I, I do think it's unfortunate because at this place, what happens is if you wear a mask all the time, you're going to be viewed as kind of pro left. Mm-hmm. And if you're like, I never wear a mask and I'm never going to wear a mask. You're associated with kind of the right, which is sort of weird that a health issue has become a political issue. Let's just be honest. This is very, very weird. It's real weird. And it's unfortunate. And both people, my, my understanding is both kind of parties, the Republicans and Democrats certainly have some responsibility here. I think it's safe to say, you know, Trump has to accept his share of responsibility for mask becoming as politicized as it has. Yeah. And, and, um, 
And so I think that just, I think most people would just like, if you're looking at the facts would mostly agree with that. Um, the gun thing though, let's, let's talk about that for a second. I agree that that's sort of, it kind of is in that same circle of rights and so forth. But the difference is, I mean, I think it seems to me that, um, I don't have a problem with people owning a gun. I like the right to own a gun myself. And so I don't have a problem with that, but you don't get the right to shoot people in the ankle when they walk by. Right. Like you can own a gun, but you Mm -hmm. can't harm other people with that gun. Now you've crossed the line. So can't we think of it in the same with the mask, which is if you're at home or you're in on your property or you're in your car or you're outside in public places, those types of things, do whatever you want. I mean, you know, but if you're going to go into someone's place of business, which they own, they get to tell you whether you should wear a mask or not, right? They get to tell you whether you wear a shirt. Yeah. Am I going to go into places without a shirt? I don't like wearing a shirt. You know the best way to not sweat through a shirt? Not to wear one. It's not to wear one. Yeah. I don't like wearing... I take the shirt off as much as possible. Andrew knows this. (laughs) (laughs) First thing I do when I get home, I kick off my shoes and socks and my shirt. Let's just... But if I'm going to go to church, I'm going to wear a shirt. So it... Yeah. What would be the best argument against that for people that still wouldn't agree with me if it's true that the virus spreads very readily and even if the virus isn't, you know, largely lethal, which it's not, thankfully. Yeah. It's still lethal to some and it's still an inconvenience. It's still in, you know, making someone sick and those types of things. So if the virus spreads very readily and it mostly spreads through respiratory and one decent way to limit exposure and con- and the contagion is to is to have a cloth over your mouth um help me out with our with the argument against that premise man i feel like i'm on a debate club where i have to like you know you have to pick us you, you get assigned a side that you don't right. agree with <laughs> um because i i agree with what you just said uh and i haven't heard a coherent argument against a that level of sort of like you kind of parallel it with gun ownership. You can, you can own it. You can shoot it on your property in a safe context, you know, legal ownership, whatever. So with the masks, like you don't have to wear it in your own home mm-hmm. around a, a group of people who are in agreement, whatever. It's hard to argue with that. What it, it would probably be, I mean, so let's go back to the gun. If if Tennessee tried to reveal repeal conceal carry, so people I don't know a third of the cars that drive around Nashville have guns in them. I made that number up, but that's what I feel like when I see the level of road rage. I'm like somebody's armed here. I'm going to back out of this one. Yeah. Um, so if if Tennessee started tried to repeal that, which would be akin to saying now you have to wear masks in public. Sure. So we're 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 taking rights into a public place, how would that be responded to by that crowd? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think there would be a strong, you're infringing on my rights. Mm-hmm. Even if, even if the rationale was, no, you still get to own it. You can even take it to places where it's appropriate to shoot hunting gun range, whatever, just to be packed appropriately, you know, ammo and guns separate in the trunk of your car, whatever, like you get to, you get to use it mm-hmm. appropriately. You just can't, slap it on the Velcro underneath your truck seat. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think the response would be almost exactly the same as, but you need to wear a mask in the grocery store. Sure. And, and again, I think it's a, there's just, there's a mindset. Um, and I think it's a very American mindset. 
maybe more American South or at least rural America, I'm not sure which, that, that the government, like the government is, is there are limits on where the government can start, can stop, you know, or should stop telling me right. what to do. Like yep. they need, they need to draw the line here and tell me no further. Yep. And, and, uh, and I think the, I think the difference is that the mask thing just doesn't cost anything. That's, I think that's the part that, that leaves me a little bit more confused is because if they repealed concealed carry, it's actually a little bit more costly because maybe you bought a pistol and you went and got your, your, your carry license and whatever, mm-hmm. like there's, there's a cost, there's time. There's a, a mask doesn't cost money or time or energy. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, it's just annoying the downside isn't isn't great yeah yeah i agree with that and and just to be clear here i hate wearing a mask (laughs) i don't i don't like it at all i mean it's it's bothersome it 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 it, i feel like it instricts my oxygen intake a little bit um it is not something means i'm not proud to wear a mask i i'd never wear a mask unless i'm really supposed to um but I understand the argument for. Yeah. Now, the argument that you have heard, which I have not heard, um, which I feel like this argument may be more common in church circles, which is a little bit embarrassing, <laughs> is the idea of wearing the mask out of fear. Like that's, someone needs to call bullcrap on that because why do you drive down the proper side of the road? Are you afraid? Why do you wear a seatbelt? Are you afraid? Like why do you... Why do you conduct yourself decently in society? Is that out of fear? No, it's out of reasonableness. It's how society works best. There's certain rules and there's certain there's a lot of unspoken things in this society. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's you know, there's there's a lot of there's there's a fair bit of laws and, and and things that are clear. And then there's a whole lot of things that are unspoken that we all do. Does it mean we're puppets? Does it mean we're robots? Does it does it mean we're about to be Nazis or whatnot because we're doing these unspoken things that culture has helped us and, and treated us kind of kind of, um, what's the term catechized us into doing, and that's right. how things work best here. That's just society. So to say like wearing a mask isn't good because you don't have faith and you're doing it out of fear that you might get sick. Well, that's just, I mean, that's that it's hard for me to see that argument standing up because there's a lot of things I do, including taking vitamins. You know, am I doing that out of fear? You know, I'm doing that because I really don't want to get sick. And I want to be healthy. Yeah, Where I'm, would you draw the line on that argument? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's, I think it's a theologically nonsensical argument, and I don't think it holds up logically for a lot of the reasons you just said. Um, you know, I've heard it, heard a quote. You know, some, I don't remember the exact Bible verse. I wish John Farmer was here. He's the best at pulling references, but. Uh, you know, we we will not do this in a spirit of fear. We won't do this. You know, in the epistles, it talks about, you know, we will not live in a spirit of fear. And, like, that gets claimed. I'm like, that's a phrase. Mm-hmm. You can't just grab things out of context. Um, and, and so caution and fear are not the same thing. Yeah. Caution for the public good is very different than fear. And in fact, there is, there's an element of courage in doing the inconvenient for what you deem to be the public good. It's the opposite of fear. Um, it's, there is something courageous about inconveniencing yourself for the, for the public good. 
And, and frankly, I think we also, we do a lot of things because the alternative is fearful. Sure. You know, why do we drive on the right side of the road? Because driving on the left side of the road is terrifying mm-hmm. and I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of that. So am I driving on the right side of the road out of fear? I'm not afraid while I'm doing it. I'm in the right place. You know, uh, that, those kinds of things. You talk about vitamins. Like I, I think there's probably an element of we are fearful of our bodies breaking down. I don't like that thought. So I'm going to do healthy things. I'm going to take vitamins. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to whatever. So is, is that out of fear? No. But the alternative is fearful. Yeah. I don't wear a mask because I go through life fearful. I wear a mask because if I can avoid a fearful alternative or avoid spreading a fearful alternative, I think that's a good thing to do. And they're, they're not the same thing. Yeah, I agree. The, the fear argument also breaks down pretty quickly because I know a lot of people wear the mask not to protect themselves from the virus, but to protect other people should yeah. they have it and not know it. So now what do we say to that? Because they're not even doing it out of fear of themselves getting the virus. They're doing that out of concern so that right. if they had it and don't know, others don't re- don't get the virus. Yeah. One, and then I, if you want to extend that, I've heard the argument applied to, you know, there's a... We're being bullied by the state, so there's fear of that. There's fear of man. You're doing this out of, out of pressure from your peers. And again, I mean, I guess that could be a motive. But also, you know, like you said, if, if, if somebody walked into church and they weren't wearing a shirt and nobody said anything and they looked around and then like walked back out to their car and got a shirt, did we pressure them into that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just by kind of the, the cultural norm here is that we wear shirts at church. Sure. Um, and, and so there is an element of that. And yeah, there, there's been a lot of shouting about it, but that's not doing something because the majority does it is not the same as fear of man. Sure. Maybe it's collective wisdom. Maybe. And I don't, and there's a lot of people, I would put myself in this category. I'm not doing it because the majority is doing it. I'm doing it because in certain places they want you to do it. Right. And so, and I, and I also think, I also think there's lots of people that do it for the signaling or whatever. An example would be, I like Formula One. And so they get mm-hmm. these guys an hour and a half and you are, you're coming out of those cars just shot. I mean, it's crazy how in shape these, these race drivers have to be. And they're very young. A lot of them are because you don't make it. If you're, if you're not fit, you can't make it through a race. So they're coming out and they are just sweating in their fire suit and they're getting put in front of a mic and they're going to do an interview and the interview is way over here and they're way over there. Excuse me. I don't know how far they are apart. But they, At least you know, six feet. Well, they're, the interviewer is much farther yeah. apart than that. And they're having these poor guys wear a mask. So, like, that's, that's to be politically correct. Let's just yeah. be honest. And when you see some people on news stations and so forth, like, there's no one near them and they're wearing a mask. That's, yeah, they're doing that's, like a walk and talk outside. That's to, be, yeah. that's to be political correct, right. or politically correct, or it's to signal to a certain people that you're on someone's camp. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, but there's no, no sense in that. And, and furthermore, you know, if someone doesn't want to wear a mask or they are not going to for health reasons, that is, like, again, that is 100% their prerogative. They can do what they want on their property. They can do what they want in their home in their car. Um, you know, they can shop at certain stores that allow that. Or, I mean, I'm a little bit libertarian here, but look, if I'm not going to force someone to go to church. So if, if you don't, if you're like set that you're not going to wear a mask, 
and the church says you need to wear a mask. I mean, my preference for you is that you just get over it and put a mask on and go to church. But I'm not going to make you do that. You have a right. Where it gets weird. So all I'm saying is for people that don't want to wear a mask, that's your prerogative. That's fine. But then then don't expect to take that right and inflict it on other people by going into your church or going into a public place where they require masks and kind of to prove a point or you're just not going to do it. Either don't go into those places or just wear a mask. There's a reason there's nudist colonies. Exactly. And it's because they have chosen to, like, that is that is a, a, the lifestyle of the things they will and will not wear. But there's, th- that has to be done elsewhere, and they don't try to bring that into, you know, I was about to say Walmart. They might try to bring it into Walmart. They're not trying to bring it into Kroger. You sure. know, like, there's yep. there's just a, there's a limit on that, and there's a recognition of it. They're like, yeah, we, we are kind of outside of the public preference, so we're going to live in this colony. And, and there's... Masks are obviously not to that extreme, but there is a like, well, don't take that preference into yes. where it's not the public preference. Yes. I think if early on, again, it's 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 hard to know exactly where the, the blame lies because when this thing, you know, blew up in February and March, no one really knew that much about it. And so I understand all of that. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't have like a good messaging point have been from both the right and the left and all the parties and and the, and the talking points is basically this. Like, uh, this can even come from Trump. Look, Americans, I'm about to ask you to do something you're not going to want to do. I know you Americans. This is what makes America great in a, in a large sense. Like, you're free thinkers, and you don't want to have people tread on you, and you like to kind of have your rights. That's all well and good, okay? So I'm yeah. going to ask you to do something that's going to make you uncomfortable. And that, But we know that this um, spreads through our breathing and speaking. And so if I could be so, you know, like trepidatious here is to ask everyone to wear a mask in your public places. That would really help with the common good. And that would really help with this public uh, health crisis pandemic that we're all in the middle of. And if both parties could just reinforce that messaging, instead of using the mask as a political thing, the no maskers, there would still be some of them, but there'd be a lot less. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be the, the fringe, the fringe element, but I think that's true. I think, um, I think if there had been a decision early on by the authoritative voices, be it be it the, the White House or any of the other political leaders, either side, to just track with the, the health officials. Because here's the thing, the health officials flip-flopped. And instead of our authoritative political voices saying, well, they've learned something new, so we're going to change, they kind of, they, they looked at it as weakness, as a flaw. There was some, it caused, it caused, you know, consternation, mockery, conflict, whatever. Yeah. They just would have been like, well, now the recommendation is this yeah. because they learned something. That's how science works. You learn stuff as exactly. you go. This, this is, this is something none of us knows anything about. We're learning more and more all the time. So now we're asking you to do this. Yeah. I think it would have made a difference and you know. I mean, a unified leadership voice is a real powerful force because there will be those who dissent, but they don't have any allies Mm -hmm. in power. So they just sort of become the like grumpy guy in the corner after a while. And you're like, fine, don't wear a mask over in the corner. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's kind of weird how it got so polarizing and politicized. Yeah. And I kind of feel like, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's as polarizing and politicized and weird as it is like out in the general population out of kind of um, 
a Christian church, you know, Christian circles, there are certain things, and I don't know why this is, but there's certain things, viewpoints, conspiracies, um, opinions um, that tend to spread quicker in Christian circles. Yeah. And back in the day, maybe this is still the case, but back in the day, multi-level marketing things <laughs> tended to yes. flourish in Christian circles. Mm-hmm. Like, why, I, I don't know. That's a different, just kind of no idea why that is. Yeah. But we see it now with QAnon, like it's, it's, it's popular in Christian circles for whatever yeah. reason. I, I'm not, just not sure. So I don't know if the mask is one of those things. It's just touching on a nerve, whatever that is to kind of flourish in yeah. those types of circles. I think that the mask thing got oddly biblicized as well. You know, when people start attaching pseudo biblical principles to it, like it's one thing if you say you should and you, then I say, I don't want to. Okay, well, we're not getting very far, but at least this is a very simplistic argument. Yeah. I don't want to do what you told me to. You would like me to do that. Now we're at an impasse. But when you start saying you're showing a spirit of fear, you're giving the devil a foothold, we're sacrificing our religious rights, you just took a simplistic, stubborn argument and and elevated it to like borderline heretical. Like you're, you're starting to misuse the word of God to say some things and yep. we've moralized something that's really a matter of um, kindness and kind of basic societal good as opposed to, I mean, you might disagree it's for societal good, but that's the question. Yeah. Not, are you in sin? Well, that's an interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up because in my opinion, that is the best argument for or against the mask. It's like... I don't want to wear it. You want me to? Well, we're at an impasse, right. so we're gonna have we're gonna need to go our ways or do whatever we gotta do to still get along, still love each other. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. I'm cool with that. That is totally fine. I'm not because I think you can get it weird on both sides. I don't. I think it's ridiculous when people wear a mask when they're not around anyone, unless they want to. It's they can do whatever they want. Yeah. But I think that's that's the best argument here, or that's how it should actually play out. Is you want to person A wants to person B doesn't. You give your viewpoints and you walk away. When you start to bring in scripture and those other weird things in a weird way, great things in a weird way, um, the problem with that then is when I start to say, reinforce my views on why, let's just say, if I were to do this, on why I should wear a mask, it doesn't matter, or not, um, now you are going to trust me less when I'm talking about something that does matter yeah. in the scripture actually does speak to. Yeah. And you see this when people start using scripture to reinforce personal opinions and you have scripture speaking to things that scripture does not speak to. The The issue there is you lose credibility with all the scripture, yeah. in my opinion. I guess because if you're going to use scripture in an incorrect way and I have, there's going to be people that agree with you and they're going to get all on board and you're going to have this little thing, this little camp where it's like, yeah, scripture does say that. And you're all like rah, rah and high five and everything. But for people that disagree and scripture is actually not speaking to that. Now, I don't really care what you say scripture has to, to say about hate or um, really anything else because you're misusing it over here. Why would I trust how you're using it over there? Yeah. So it's, we need to be real careful when we start to pull that scripture speaking to the mask. I mean, that's... Yeah. And there are, there are so many foundational verses that should dictate how we interact with one another that eliminates the opportunity for dissent I, mm. or, or contentiousness. Dissent is one thing. Dissent yep. just means disagreement. But the, you know, love your neighbor as yourself 
do everything without grumbling and complaining. Consider others before yourself. Like you just, you just get the list of these verses. All of those disallow contentiousness over something as stupid as masks. Yeah. And they don't disallow, they, they don't cut disagreement out, but they cut animosity out. Yeah. And yet, and yet here we are. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, everyone says they're following science, but that's just what we need to do, right? I mean, look, yeah. if, if the science comes out and it's like, oh, guys, we had it wrong once again, and this doesn't spread through respiratory, this spreads when you touch something that someone else touched or you shake hands. Well, then at that point, no one needs to wear a mask if we know that for a fact. Mm-hmm. But if this is spreading through respiratory, like... Yeah. We only have one mouth, y'all. Like this is—you don't have to cover up your armpits. You don't have to cover your eyes. Like it's through your mouth. Like if you can just cover that, because that's the way it's spreading. Mm-hmm. It just makes sense logically to me. And again, I don't like to wear it more than I need to. Like that—it's not a thing that I like to do right. whatsoever. But it—if that's what the science is saying, it makes sense logically. The Whole Foods would say. You guys can shop anywhere you want. We don't have a problem with that. But if you want to shop at Whole Foods downtown Nashville, you need to come in here with a mask on. I mean, they I don't own that building. So I either at that point need to put on a mask or go somewhere else. Like that just seems yeah. basic. I mean, like when you go to somebody's house and they're like, hey, would you mind taking your shoes off? I don't know. That's not a thing that happens in the South. In the North, it happens all the time because it's snowy half the year. Yeah. Like, you just, you walk in, you forget, and they're like, hey, do you mind taking your shoes off? You're not like, no, I have a right to wear shoes yeah. in your home. It's, it's, it's a touch, yeah, it's a yeah, touch of the a, same. Yeah, it really is. Um, hoping for happiness. Congratulations, man. Well, thank you. But you also had, did you publish two books this year? Uh, well, I cheated. Um, Hoping for Happiness is brand new. Help My Unbelief and the Pastor's Kid re-released this year, but they're older books. Okay, so the so Pastor's they, Kid did re-release this year. Yes. That's Help My Unbelief Help also Help My Unbelief re-released, re-released in January. Okay. Pastor's Kid re-released in June, and nobody noticed because in June we were all isolating <laughs> and not paying attention to books. Yep. Um, yeah, so those are those are a few years old, and then they re-released. What year did you write The Curious Christian? came out in 2017, so three years ago. Oh, okay. All right, so Hoping for Happiness, and is this mine to keep, by the way? It is yours to keep. Okay, thank you very much. Um, what's the book about? I didn't read it yet. <laughs> That's fair, since I just gave it to you now. Um, had you read it, I would have been very impressed. Um, <laughs> it's, it's trying to find a mindset, a framework of understanding for what is realistic happiness in this life. So kind of pulling against two extremes. So I came out of a conservative Christian background where happiness is often something that people are suspicious of. Um, Too much enjoyment is potentially worldly. Happiness is something trite. Happiness is often attached to things that are are, uh, a waste of time, that are temptations. So now there's a heavy emphasis on joy as if that's a different thing than happiness. Right. I touch on that in the book. I don't think they're that different. Um, mm. But but so there's that there's that side, and I, I I grew up in that, and I just perpetually was like, but happiness is great. And also, I don't think God would have made like bacon if he didn't want us to be happy. Mm-hmm. I don't think God would have made music if he didn't want us to be happy. I yep. don't think God would have told us over and over again to find gladness and rejoice. Like rejoicing doesn't mean sing at church. Mm. Rejoicing means f- have this like bubbling overflow of of happiness. Mm -hmm. So, and it might express itself in singing. It might express itself in poetry or laughter or a lot of different things. So I just look at that and I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why are we suspicious of happiness? 
Then the flip side is the worldly. And when I say worldly, I just mean like sort of the non-Christian general frame of mind that is perpetually chasing the next pleasure. You get into a job and, and you just, you're dissatisfied after a year, two years, and you want the next thing. You want to fulfill all your dreams in your job. You bounce from relationship to relationship, whatever the case may be. There's always a next happiness that's better than the current one. And I said, well, that's, that doesn't sound great either. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. It's, just, it's a spin cycle of disappointment. Um, so what is realistic? And so I looked, I looked heavily at Ecclesiastes. You brought Ecclesiastes up earlier because I think Ecclesiastes is just the most grounded book in the Bible looking at, it's basically Solomon saying, look, y'all, I tried everything. Here's what I learned. Mm-hmm. And he starts by saying, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that's not, that doesn't mean everything is meaningless. It just means nothing lasts. Yep. So vanity could be, could be translated as like um, vapor of vapors. It just, it's a wisp. It's just gone. And then he goes through and he's like, I tried sex, tried money, tried work, tried drink, tried everything, both good and, you know, and sinfully. And he says, none of them will fulfill, Mm. but they're all great if they take their proper place. Mm -hmm. And, and then kind of just, and he just sums up with this is, this is the, what is it? This is the full uh, the full command or the full measure of man is to fear God and do keep his commands. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, there's a simplicity to life, but also a like, yeah, we can find pleasure. Just don't expect the wrong things out of it. Yes. Expect the right things, expect the things that God intended out of it. Yep. So that's the, that's the gist of it um, is just what, what does it mean to be happy in this life when nothing lasts, but there are good things? Yes. hundred percent. I was looking forward to talking about this, book with you because, and I'm looking forward to reading it because this is, this is, this is a subject matter that I feel like I have questions about. Like, I feel like I need to, I need to learn and grow in this area. Honestly, you also said something, was it in relation to this book or somewhere, something along the lines of being a recovering cynic. (laughs) So I guess, I guess my question kind of is, you know, of all the books you could write and all the topics, why this one? And does that have anything to do with being a recovering cynic? Yeah. Recovering cynic is kind of the mindset I brought to it. So I would say for, for a long time, my bent, my mentality was to kind of, it it put a ceiling on happiness because cynicism is not the same thing as pessimism. You know, pessimism is, well, this isn't going to work. And it's just sort of a perpetual like Eeyore sunny now, but it's going to rain mentality. And cynicism is more like looking at good things and going, yeah, but there's also, you kind of, you kind of find the downside to stuff a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there's the like, yeah, we got to, got to consider this thing. And it, the way that it plays itself out is that you never throw yourself into something fully mm. because you, you hold back in case, in case something's not quite great. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, if you give 90% to something and it doesn't work out, you can always blame the 10% you didn't give. Sure. If you give a hundred percent to something and it doesn't work out, you don't have anything to. You don't have anyone to blame. Yes, yeah, like true. You just you're like, well, I gave it everything I had and it didn't work. Yeah. And the same is true for enjoyment. You kind of hold back a little bit of yourself, and then if it's not a great experience, you're like, well, I protected myself. Yes. Whereas if you've given yourself a hundred percent to this and it doesn't work out, it feels more disappointing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by recovering cynic. There's just sort of that perpetual withholding of full expectations for good things. Mm-hmm. Something's, something's always going to go just a little off. 
And I was, I always said I was a realist. And there's a touch of truth in that because realistically in a fallen world, things don't always work out right. So a cynic might be realistic sometimes. Um, but a realist also says you have to look realistically at God and at the fallen world. Mm-hmm. And so if you're realistically looking at God, you do say, I need to give 100% of myself to enjoying the things of God, to yes. pursuing the things of God, to, to taking the risk that, that may end in disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's kind of the mindset when I talk about recovering cynic. And I, I think I wrote the book just because um, man, it, I was so tired of being disappointed in different things. And, and I, and I was trying to figure out why I was, why I was disappointed so often Hmm. and came to realize that so much of it had to do with my expectations. You know, I was expecting the wrong things of, of whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. of a hamburger or a marriage, you know, like Mm -hmm. you can, you can do it on the, on the smaller, the big scale. And, so what are realistic expectations? What does God want me to expect of a cheeseburger mm-hmm. or of a marriage or of a church? And, and that just, as I, so I started to chew on that and figure out, you know, what does, what does scripture have to say? And it was really, it was profoundly freeing. Um, and it, it started to kind of rightly order things where God wants me to expect this, but not this. You know, he gives me this wonderful food to give pleasure, but not to give pleasure tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, today's dinner doesn't please me tomorrow at 3 p.m. It's just for now. That was, yep. that was today's good gift. So enjoy it for today. And then tomorrow brings its own gifts or troubles. You know, mm-hmm. we'll find out. Um, and so some of that. But then another piece of it was also what does happiness look like when life is just an absolute mess? Um, went through a divorce a few years ago, 2016. And, um, you know, it's finding happiness in the midst of that. I wasn't thinking about this systematically then. That was just more holding on for dear life is what it felt like more than anything. Um, but coming out of that and going, well, what does it look like to be happy again? Because I, mm-hmm. I thought this was the thing that was going to make me happy as I got older. And now it's gone. Yeah. So what does happiness look like now? Because I never lost the conviction that God was good and faithful. And so if God is good and faithful and I have the rest of my life ahead of me, I don't, I didn't think it was bleak. It just was blank. Okay. So, so what did it look like to figure out happiness in in light of that disappointment, that misery? Um, And so there was, it was born a lot out of that as well. Like that process of discovering a, a, a kind of a level-headed foundational sort of happiness. Mm-hmm. So did your future look blank in 2016 or 2017? I'm sure there's just a period where going through that divorce, there's just a fog, you know, you don't know what to feel or think or do right. or any kind of vision for the future. But, um, but then when you, when you start to think about the future and start to have some kind of coherent thoughts, are you, the future did look blank and not bleak, which is kind of, I guess that's kind of surprising to me. I would have thought maybe I'm more familiar with the bleak. I, I think <laughs> if, so here's, so here, there's a lot of reasons it was not totally bleak and all of them are, are testaments to God, good, God's goodness. One was, um, one was my kids. 
So I have two daughters and, and, uh, as long, as long as they loved me and I loved them and I had a reason, like I had a reason to get up every day and go about my business. And it was to make sure that their life stayed on track. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've joint custody with their mom. And, and, uh, so, you know, they're not, they're not with me all the time, but I'm a hundred percent their dad. So I need to give a hundred percent of, of my, my thoughts in that direction. So, and their future is not bleak. So why, how, how demeaning would it be for me to act as if there was nothing worth living for when their future is worth living for, if nothing else. And there was more than that. I, you know, but some days like that was it. Um, I, I had a really good job at the time, you know, one that I, I enjoyed my coworkers. I was good at it. Um, and it was, it was a Christian company who the people there were supportive and understanding. And so there was provision, like God's provision for me was really good. I didn't, I didn't lose everything mm-hmm. in terms of say, the, just kind of the, the security of like, I have a home, I have a paycheck, I can pay my bills. I'm good. Um, and there's a lot to be thankful for there. And then the third thing was just an, an awareness that, um, like I'd, I'd been through some various hard times before, mostly of my own making. Um, and I just seen God come through too many times to look ahead and go, well, he's, I think he's dropped the ball this time. Mm-hmm. Like, no, he didn't. I just don't know what he's going to do. Yep. I didn't know how to think about the future. So when I say blank, it, I had confidence that, that God had a future for me. Mm-hmm. I just had no idea what it was because everything that had been painted in my mind was built around taking this family into that future. I see. And so that when that was erased, it had to be reconstructed in a way that I didn't know how to construct. Sure. Yeah. That makes total sense. The, um, a divorce like that is, um, oh man, does that feel like, like, like a death? Does it feel worse than a death in some ways? Um, yeah, I think it feels worse than a death in some ways. And for anybody listening who's lost a loved one, I do not mean to diminish that. Um, I think they're probably different kinds of pain, but the the difference is that you wait, there's death is final. You know, when a death happens, there is a, a clarity to moving on, not an ease, um, but there's a clarity to it. The, you, you must come to terms with a new reality. A divorce doesn't feel like that, especially when you're not the one who wanted it. Now, you might be able to leave a spouse behind and say, I'm just moving on. I don't, oh, I don't, that sounds ridic- ridiculous to mm-hmm. me. But, um, but I, I mean, to, to the day it was finalized, I was, I was praying that, that it wouldn't happen. So then the day was finalized, like a light switch just doesn't go off and go, well, that's done. Um, right. There, there's, a, there's a massive adjustment to figuring out what it looks like. And then there are kids and joint custody. And, and also just what does it look like to be an honorable Christian man towards, again, this situation? You know, I don't, I didn't want to, I didn't want my ex-wife to be my enemy. Sure. You know, that nobody wins, especially not the kids, but nobody wins. So there's a, there's a tie to the past that's not, that cannot be, uh, 
that can't be broken the way that death breaks a tie. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the breaking of that tie in death is a different sort of pain. Mm-hmm. So like that's, you know, that's a, that's a gut wrenching thing. Um, but yeah, I think, so I think in some ways it's worse than a death in, in those sort of complicated, like a protracted process of just dealing with a new reality like that. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And also like just having to face the fact that they don't want to be married to you anymore. Seems hard to handle too in its own way. Yeah. And then also you mentioned expectations and it just occurs to me also that this is not a one size fits all situation because in some situations it's like a, you know, divorce happened and let's just take an example where someone doesn't even believe in God or they don't, they're not even going to church. And well, that's, in some divorces, in some of those settings, it's it's a little bit more like, well, yeah, it's just, you know, we just, it didn't work out, so we're yeah. separate. Well, in your situation, this is like, you know, conservative evangelical church, and things are expected of you. Well, <laughs> then you also have the thing of being John Piper's son, I assume, mm-hmm. um, and then you have some of those expectations. And, and, uh, and so it could be that your situation is maybe in some ways more difficult than some, and maybe in some ways not as difficult as others, you know, but. Yeah, I think, I think the, one of the things that in which God showed a lot of grace was the the people around me, I, I didn't face a lot of judgment. I feared a lot of judgment. Oh yeah. Um, and I got some, but it was almost all from people I didn't know. Which, if you know, if you get negative comments from people you don't know, they're the easiest ones to ignore. Sure. You know, just report spam, and off, and they're gone. Yep. Um, or block them on Twitter or whatever. Um, but nobody had the stones to say negative things to my face, and and the the friends, the Christian friends, the Christian community I had, and then so I came to a manual coming out of that situation a few months later after it had been finalized, so mid twenty seventeen. And quickly got folded into to a community that was just like non-judgmental mm. on that. You know, there wasn't nobody was sitting down and quizzing me to figure out like what percent guilty are you? Or oh, okay. you know, those yes. those kinds of things that the Christian church has a propensity to do sometimes. Sure. Or just, you know, sort of treating it like a scarlet letter, like always oh, divorced. He's he's a problem. Mm. Um so I didn't I didn't face a lot of that, thankfully. Um my parents were um, when I say supportive, I don't mean like they liked the divorce or sure. spoke ill of my ex-wife or anything. They they prayed for restoration the whole time as well, but supportive in in that they they loved me throughout. Mm-hmm. There was no hint of like, you know, if you don't get this straightened out, then there will be a judgment consequence. Sure, writing you out of the will, whatever. Um, and so, like, I just never doubted that they're they're praying presence for me either. Um, and that, yeah, all of that. All of that I look back on and go, man, I, I'm thankful because mm-hmm. I don't, bearing up under that would have been, would have just added hardship for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad you wound up at Emmanuel that soon after I hadn't known that um, because Emmanuel's a good place to come to if you're beat up. Yeah. Was the divorce the primary um, kind of motivation behind this book or? No, it was kind of the culmination. Uh, okay. I, I would say that there's kind of been just different chapters in my own life of figuring out like pursuing happiness badly, um, pursuing it in sin, pursuing it in good things, but making kind of making ultimate things out of good things, you know, wanting to be 
you know, wanting professional advancement too much, wanting money too much, wanting whatever. So, and those are not bad things, you know, like doing well at your job, getting promoted, good, but also not the, like, that's not the be all end all. Um, marriage was, marriage was probably the most profound one because it, it touches on so many aspects of life, you know, it touches on, you know, relational fulfillment, what you expect out of the future, sex life, uh, just kind of all of these things that people turn to for, I expect happiness out of this. Yes, true. You know, and then, and then when, so when it, when it's gone, a lot of things you look to for happiness are now either gone or rearranged Mm -hmm. and have to be reordered correctly. Mm -hmm. Uh, or in a lot of people's cases, not reordered correctly. So it, it was the culmination, but it was the kind of the, the realization that marriage isn't a monolithic thing. It's this comprehensive thing that, that covers physical, mental, spiritual, um, well-being, health, expectations, how we view the future. What are we, what are we looking for in the future? Even how we think about work. Work work changed for me after I got divorced because I now had, I didn't have anybody to think about except me. Like I needed to pay the bills for myself and to make sure my kids were taken care of. But all of a sudden I was like, oh, I don't, is make whatever decisions I want about what happens next kind of thing. And so there's those kinds of things. Like there's just marriage ought to provide a framework for every decision we make. Yep. Um, when it goes away, your framework goes away. Yep. So what is your framework? Yes. Oh, that's a good point. Now I'm kind of curious about the sex life thing and I don't want to be inappropriate or have you kind of share anything, right. You know, that, it's weird to share on the podcast, but I'm, I'm curious yeah. because you're married and so you had a sex life and then, and then you don't like, how do you, how do you work through that? That seems difficult. Is it yeah. like, well, this is, this is a good gift from God and in a marriage structure, that's a very wonderful thing. It's designed by God. Yeah. And so that I had that first season and now I don't. And so I'm just going to have to sort of work through this and kind of deal with it. Or how, how did you work? How do you work through that? And if only it was that, that easy. Um, it's, yeah, there's not an off switch to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for men, I don't think we have an off switch period. And I don't mean that in like men are pigs, but just like mm-hmm. just the, the drive is, is always there uh, to some degree. Um, I was in one relationship shortly after getting divorced that it didn't, didn't go very well. And coming out of that relationship, you know, so jumping back into dating too soon, because really it's not smart to date right after you get divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, coming out of that relationship was... So divorce, dated too soon, come out of that relationship. That's when I started to get the un, like a real clear understanding of what, what did God intend? Mm. Like, so it, what did, why did God intend sex to be in marriage and not any other way. Sure. Because in marriage, you can take it for granted mm-hmm. and you can almost cheapen it because mm-hmm. you're like, we just get to do this thing and then you can get bored with it or mm-hmm. it becomes fetishized or it becomes an idol, you mm-hmm. know, uh, as if it's not going well or if, you know, if one wants it and the other doesn't or mm-hmm. whatever, and it becomes, it takes a place it shouldn't as mm-hmm. opposed to a place of kind of beautiful union and, you know, expression of, of how much you, you love and are invested in one another, it becomes a, 
like an it's an object of desire. And that, right. It's not that's not what it's ought what it yeah. ought to be. Um, so and 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 I you know in a dysfunctional marriage, there's dysfunctional sex life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Usually, the two go hand in sure. hand. Um, and so you know, coming out of that, coming out of what what wasn't a relationship at the right time or in the right way. From that point on, so you know, yeah, early 2017 on, it really became something that I I started to pay a lot more attention to. Like I had known all the Bible verses about it, but now I think I really started to get them in terms of when people say it's a good gift mm. that God had designed. Oh, that's what that means. Yeah, interesting. When people yeah. say it's for this and it's it means this, that's that's what that means. Yeah, and um, yeah, it 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 shifted my perspective, and I got remarried a couple months ago, and it's um through our entire dating and engagement relationship and now into marriage, that period of time, so from 2017 to 2019, a couple years there, was so foundational in me being ready to, to handle it well in this relationship, mm, mm-hmm. both pre-marriage and during marriage, and, yeah. and to not fetishize and not idolize and not uh, cheapen yep. either my wife or sex itself. Yep, yep. And I, and I think... Those are not things I understood the way that God intended prior. Yeah. So it's almost like through that crucible of suffering by experiencing a particular good gift and then not, and then maybe one day hoping for that again, but then having to deal with that kind of in between and 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 just making it through and trusting God and all of this, like there's still like there's a there's a benefit to going through difficult things like yes. that, you know? Um the, I've heard Ray say one time that as in terms of like, what's the, what did God have in mind with like our sensuality or sexuality or even sex drive, I guess, aside from pro, pro, procreation? Um, I mean, the comment that I've heard him made before is it's, it's a great motivator, you know, like it does, let's be honest, like it does drive you to go get a job. And to have your life in order and to be building for a brighter future and those types of things. Like there is a, like there is a, um, there is a motivation, uh, around sex that doesn't have a direct connection to sex. Like it, it bleeds out into other areas of life. I think that's true when sex has not been cheapened. I think society has kind mm-hmm. of undermined a lot of that because like sex is just, sure. a, well, digital sex is available whenever you want it. Right. And sex of the non-committal variety is available with relative ease. Yes. You know, like you can find somebody mm-hmm. if, if that's what you're looking for. Um, so, but if you want any fulfillment out of a meaningful relation like a meaningful sexual relationship, what what that what you just said is true, or what Ray said is true. Yes. Well, yeah. that's actually a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. If the um, if it if you're just going to porn, let's just say, well, that's that's not. I mean, but if you have to back in the day, you know, you had to have the guts to talk to a girl, and then you had to get <laughs> her to like you, and then you yeah. had to. Find someone, find a car, you know, borrow a car and dress up and go out and find a movie and those types of things. Um, 
you know, and furthermore, you have to like have learned some life skills, you know, because yeah. if you can't talk to anyone and you have nothing interesting to say, then she's probably not going to want to go out with you. And if she does, it's not going to last long. It's like all of that. Like, yeah. so you're, you know, that's, I guess, where that motivation or that sex sensuality or sexuality can, can, can be a good motivator. But if, if it's just going to, you know, online porn, for example, then that's just, that's a different thing entirely. Yeah. And I I think one of the things, I think one of the things about sex that is so hard to articulate is, I mean, setting aside the, the societal sort of, um, availability and diminishment of the value of sex, just the, the complete cheapening and availability of it. But even within a Christian context, so you're raising kids, you're talking to them about what, it, what is, you know, sex is, is a gift from God in marriage between a man and a woman, all of which is right. It's really hard to explain the... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The how good the gift is, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and I, I don't mean like the pleasure necessarily, mm-hmm. as much as like the what what the gift gives back mm-hmm. in in a in a healthy, unified, committed marriage. Right. You know what what the place of this thing is in making two people one. You know, yeah. pa- Paul calls marriage a mystery. Some aspect of that is is the sexual union. Yeah, you're right. It's a good point. But out of that, there's also a spiritual union and a yep. relational union and a I put this person first and, yep. and and all of that kind of thing. And 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 sex is a real significant aspect of that. I don't know how you explain that to somebody who hasn't committed themselves to it and then figured started to figure it out yes yeah yeah you're right um are, how are you doing on time are you okay right now or should we should we wrap this thing up quick i'm, I'm good i got a little bit longer um i wanted to ask you something oh happiness and joy well first of all the idea that happiness is you know somewhat kind of dirty i guess if you will um in, in, in some circles, like I, I, I resonate with that. Like, I feel like they're, and also I wonder if that was a more popular viewpoint, like in the nineties. I don't know. I could be wrong. Maybe it's still probably prevalent, prevalent now. Um, but I definitely resonate with that. And then also the splitting of happiness and joy. So that I've heard Mm -hmm. and kind of thought that's the way that it's supposed to be, or that's the way that it is, but you're pushing back on that a little bit. Yeah. How do you think about happiness and joy? Well, I, I think the easiest way to answer that is for me to pose a question in return. Um, so can think about somebody who talks about joy often. They're committed to joy. They teach about joy. They, they, they think joy is a high value. And they're a miserable person. Like, what is that joy? What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Like, joy without a smile on your face, joy without laughter, joy without a sense of humor, joy without taking pleasure in the experiences of life is really, what is that thing? Mm -hmm. It just, it sounds like a theological term that has no basis in reality to me. So there's a version of happiness that has no correlation to godly joy. You know, just the, the pursuit of pleasure, temporal pleasure is kind of finding meaning in that, that that's a sort of happiness. You look, I mean, you, you go to Broadway in Nashville on a Friday night and people are, it, people are happy. They're really happy right up until about 
7 a.m. when their alarms go off the next morning and they have to catch a flight home and then they're miserable because that happiness didn't deliver. You know, like, there's, but, it's, but it's real. It's mm-hmm. a version. But I'm talking about the kind of happiness where we expect the right things out of what God gives. And I don't think there's much difference than joy. Um, I think you can have happiness in the midst of suffering. Like when I was going through a divorce, when I was in that period of time afterwards where life was very um, just uncertain, I didn't know what was happening. I, I still found happiness. Like I still had a sense of humor. I still had friends who I could really enjoy the company of. Like food didn't lose its taste. I loved being outside, you know, and the, like the fall in Tennessee is just amazing. And those kinds of things are all still there. Like there's happiness in the midst of suffering because there's gratitude there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's in the midst of it, there's looking around and going, God gave me this. Mm-hmm. I get to be grateful for this thing in the midst of a time that it can be very hard to be grateful for. Yeah. And in that way, happiness and joy overlap. And so the only way to separate those two things is to misdefine happiness. That's something that, that I think is too cheap and too small. So I, I, that's, that's more or less the, the answer. I think, I think people, um, I think somewhere along the way, people separated the two so that they could say, this is a false pursuit of pleasure this is a good pursuit of pleasure. And in, so they attached happiness to one and joy to the other. But I, I think that's splitting hairs and misdefining terms. Interesting. So, so there, but there is a difference between happiness, between happiness and pleasure seeking, which you alluded to earlier. Pleasure yeah. seeking can go very bad very quickly. Yeah. What's, I think pleasure seeking is expecting the wrong things out of good gifts, generally speaking. So for example, mm-hmm. let's go back to the Broadway on a Friday night example. Like I don't have anything against grabbing a drink or enjoying the company of a beautiful woman mm-hmm. or great music or whatever. But if you're expecting the wrong things out of that, and so you get hammered, you, you know, you're, you're just there to get laid. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the music thing, you know, that that's probably more just accelerating the other stuff. And, uh, or maybe you're in the band and like you, the, the adulation you're receiving is all of your fulfillment. Like you just end up empty. Sure. Yes. Whereas if you're there expecting a really fun evening, like you go down there with, with friends or with your wife or whatever, and you have some drinks and you listen to some music and you eat some food and you go home and you're like, man, that was amazing. You're really happy. And you didn't expect the wrong things out of this. You expected God to, to enjoy the things that God created and you did and ta-da, happy. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's, okay, that's put very well. It's like one chocolate chip cookie is like heaven and six is disgusting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, the, but the, the five after the first tastes very good, but then you're like, oh, that's yeah, stupid. But, but 40 you know? minutes later, you don't think so. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and then the next morning you're like, dang, what did I do? And you have this sense of guilt and... I only say that because recently we made some very good chocolate chip cookies, and they the, were very large, and they were very good. And I, I should have had I just saw one. The pictures, <laughs> and but I, I had was, more than one. I was jealous, which I also don't think was very godly, but they did look really good. <laughs> they were so good. Um, was there anything that you learned as you thought through, researched, learned more about this idea, concept of happiness? that was surprising to you that you didn't expect that you would, that that's the way it is. But as you research and learn, it's like, no, that's the way it is. And that's a surprise to me. I, 
if there was one thing that was surprising, it was probably how uh, mortality informs happiness. Just the so much of the worldly pursuit of happiness is in an effort to deny the fact that it's all coming to an end. And Christians are not bound by that. So mortality physically, but then also the freedom of eternal life, which is a big part of what Ecclesiastes is about, you know, the living now for the future. So and what, what that means is we get to maximize our present life with an eye towards eternal life. So it doesn't cheapen, but neither is it eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, it's not sort of the nihilistic, nothing has meaning sort of thing. And so the coming to terms with the reality of death frees us up to be happy in an entirely different way that, that we couldn't be otherwise. I mean, just I'm trying to think, I, I don't remember what book it was, but it was, um, it might've been Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. Have you read it? It's a, I don't think so. Okay. It's about the 300 at the, uh, Battle of Thermopylae. It's a novel, but it's... Very, I started that book. It's oh, a novel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I didn't that, finish it. Oh, man, you should. It's, it's brilliant. But he, there, he, the way that he writes, I think it's in that book, he talks about the joy of battle for some of these guys. Yeah. And there's a sense of like, they, their purpose in living is so clear. And they had a belief in an afterlife. Like, I don't think that they were right. But like, the, the, the future freedom enabled them to, to just find relish in the the work that they were called to in this life, the stuff that they were doing. And except for a Christian, it's all real. Like mm-hmm. are we have real eternal life with real perfect joy. And so there's just a freedom in it because de- death doesn't, it doesn't make us like pa- panic now. Like I have to fill up this life with all the pleasures because it's all I've got. Neither does it say, well, this life isn't really worth enjoying. So I'm just going to ride it out until the next one. Like, yeah, no, you just make the most of it. Yeah. And then you get to the better one. That's a very interesting observation. I did not expect that, but that is, I can totally see it and it's pretty profound. I'm reading a book right now called uh, The Denial of Death, Hmm. and now I can't think of the author, which is uh, not good. (laughs) He was a philosopher who died at a young age. I think he, he died like between 35 and 40. Okay. Can you try to find the author of The Denial of Death? Beckett, I think. I think Ken Beckett, maybe. Um, But uh, what you're saying about mortality having an effect on our view of happiness is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's talking in there about how much we do out of just this, this need to just, like, not think about the fact that we are going to die one day. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so Christians should think about happiness very differently than a non-believer who thinks they're just going to die and that's just the end of everything. I think of it differently. And here, here's, what, here's what you hear, the denial of death. Uh, who's the author? Ernest the Becker. The author is Ernest Becker. Ernest Becker. Yeah, Ernest Becker. Thanks. Um, phenomenal book. And it's touching on a lot of different things because as it turns out, the fear of death that fingers out into almost yeah. everything. So it's, yeah. it's a fascinating book. It's not a quick read, um, but I'm really enjoying it. And, um, but it's, 
don't, I, I've heard, I, I don't know if it's from certain camps or if it's kind of popular in the, again, some of these things kind of have their turn, it seems like in, in Christian circles, but this idea of like, you get one life and like, it's one life, live it well, live it as best you can. Like you only get one shot at this. That creates a sort of, I think, unwise, it's true. We only have one life. That, yeah. that's, that's true. But we're not going to be here on earth for a hundred years, 80 years, 105 years, whatever it winds up being. And then poof, be in some other form floating around in clouds. Like, so my perception on this back in my twenties, I would have thought more in terms of you get one life to live, yeah. be the best, experience it all, travel the world, you know, experience all of these things because you only have a hundred years here on earth. Fill up your tank, boy. I don't think that way anymore. I would still like to do some travel in my day if and when I can, because I love to get out and see new places and experience new cultures and new food and mm-hmm. new mountainsides. I mean, there's so many, there's so much nature that I'd love to see. However, here's how I think now. If I don't get it done in my 80 years or hundred years, I have eternity to get it done. It's the new heavens and the new earth, baby. Yeah, and it's gonna so, be a, it's gonna be a better one too. I mean, yeah, the, the, and be, so, the beautiful things will just be more beautiful. If I mean, at least my the way that I understand new heavens and new earth is a recreation, not a destruction, and then like exactly. something else. Yeah. So you know, if I don't get to see all parts of the world, you know, in this one life, I intend to keep seeing that world in yeah. in the, the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, and I think one way to think about happiness, I didn't I don't think I wrote it this way in the book, but there's there's sort of a like practicing for heaven mentality. Like if you believe in a new heavens and a new earth that are going to be an eternity of no pain, no no sorrow, mm-hmm. no tears, and you know the the revelation depicts a, a wedding feast. Like there's a there's a real earthy tangibleness to that. Like mm-hmm. it, if that's the new heavens and the new earth, it is living with resurrected bodies that we should probably get really good at enjoying things well now. Yeah. And I don't mean okay. gloating ourselves on them. I mean appreciating them. Yes. Because I, I mean, I think we carry, I think we carry experiences and knowledge, the knowledge of God that we grow in. Like there's a reason to mature as a Christian, as opposed to just like, I'm going to skate through and then like get it right at the end of my life. Mm-hmm. And it's because we, we carry that, that uh, whatever maturity we bring, that whatever experiences into heaven, so that like heaven is, we we more fully experience it. Yep. Sam Sam Storms was one of my professors in college, and somebody was asking him about that, and he said, "So are you saying that some people have like a more perfect heaven?" And he said, "No, everybody has maximum enjoyment in heaven. It's just that some people start with a thimble of enjoyment, and it grows over eternity. Some people start with an ice cream bucket of enjoyment." And it grows over eternity. And some people start with a swimming pool of enjoyment because of what they bring in. So Hmm. it's always overflowing. Mm -hmm. It's just what, like, what do you have the capacity to enjoy? And then he made the point, he said, and after about a billion years, the difference between a thimble and a swimming pool is pretty negligible. Yeah. So so, I was like, that's a good point. Yeah. But it, that helped me also just think, yeah, there's value in all of the Christian like the Christian growth in this life, both in, you know, enjoyment of good things and in dealing with suffering and in yes. growing in knowledge of the word and so forth. Yep. hundred percent. Um, do you want to read some up there, Andrew? Um, just good applicable verses. Um, 
to that very thing, the, the one that came to my mind was straight from Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, and this is the ESV version. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil. It goes on, whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might, but then it ends, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So that's real. Mm-hmm. And in short, what that is saying is go go enjoy your life because it won't last. Yeah. Exactly as Barnabas was saying. Well, then verse yep. seven where he says, right, you read it right at the beginning, where God for God has already approved what you do. I mean, there's a there's a rubber stamp of approval on yes. the work, the marriage. The pleasure, like these are things that God's like, I, I made these, I gave these, will you please enjoy yes. them? It's true. It's true. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but again, in my 20s, and there was a season in life where I kind of was all about the success, all about the like self-growth and development. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a trajectory and, you know, what's going to be my best life by 40 and I need to be working towards that and everything. And um, I mean, it started out great until I felt kind of the shallowness of it all just kind of creeping into my soul, to be honest. But I even would poo-poo like good things, like like people that took time to eat a, you know, some good food over lunch. Like I'm not going to, you know, stoop to that or like take half a day to barbecue meat on a Saturday, you know, or to watch football for half the day. I was like, dude, those people need to get some goals in life. You know, I'm just head down working over here. And you know what? Now I see, like, now I see, like, that is life. Like, relax, dude. Enjoy that food. Yeah. Enjoy that smoked meat. Enjoy that football. Enjoy hugging your two-year-old daughter, you know, and looking in her bright blue eyes and just kind of having that moment while you know, yes, tomorrow you might have something going on at work that you're concerned about. Or you might have issues in your life, but right here's your two-year-old daughter. Like you have to be able to enjoy that while you still have the cares of this world, yeah. so to speak, kind of in a portion of your mind. That's just that's just how life is. Yeah, and Christians can do that. So you're talking about kind of the pursuing self, you know, kind of self-growth, professional growth. You can do it just as much in burying yourself in, in the word, you know, or like theological education, theological knowledge, pursuit of ministry over the exact same things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, sure. whether, whether you're a pastor or just a, a Christian who's very intense, you know, kind of intensely seeking to grow, you can miss out on things that God intends for you yep. by spending too much time trying to find the things God intends for you. Yeah. Hmm. Because because yeah, you because you've right. limited how you you've limited how God delivers those things. Yeah. If you only think that God delivers good things through theological study, you have missed the entire doctrine of creation. Mm-hmm. You know when God said six times in Genesis, God made this and it was good. Like the goodness didn't go away; it just yes. got tainted. Yes. There's yeah. a lot yep. of goodness. Yep. You're totally right. Totally right. Anything else about the book that um, was, I guess, particularly meaningful to you or um, that's going to stick with you? Yeah, I think the thought that I keep having about it, as, as the same is true with, with my other books, is it's like an accountability metric for me. You know, everything I'm just saying to you, I, I'm, I didn't write this from a place of I have arrived. 
it's more like I have discovered. Mm. But now I have to figure out how to perpetually, you know, you talk about enjoying hugging your two-year-old daughter or, you know, whatever. Like I have to, I have to push myself into that daily because mm-hmm. my, my bent is to, to rush past good things, to not yep. pause and enjoy, to not be grateful. So there's a, there's an accountability in writing this for me that's, that I have to, I have to live up to. Yep. And the same is true, you know, with, with books about faith and doubt and whatever, like, dude, I have to live up to the things that I say, Hey, you should believe this stuff. Yeah. Do I, do I live like I do? Yep. That's, I think that's what, that's what will stick with me as much as anything is not, um, like I didn't write it and wash my hands of it. I wrote sure. it and was like, Oh, this is kind of a, this is a metric for yep. how am I living my life as a faithful believer now? Yeah, absolutely. Is it weird to have things out there that you've written? Do you ever write something such a long time ago that's like, man, if I could find all those books or if I could find <laughs> and burn them or if I could, you know what I mean? Like if I could just take down that blog post, you know, um, is that, do you experience I have, that? I have taken down some blog posts. Well, yes. on your own, of course, yeah. but I'm saying like you write something and it's like out there and it's you can't there. take it down and... Or is that not um, something you have too much experience with? <laughs> I, I, thankfully, I have avoided saying anything that I have, like, hence come to think as, you know, heretical or something. I, for me, it's more like I wasn't a very good writer s- seven years ago or 10 years ago. And so I look back and I go, oof, that was, okay. that, that was sloppy. Yeah. Um, no, I actually had the chance to read the audio books for my two oldest books earlier this summer because they, they oh, were that's re-releasing. Cool. Which ones? The, uh, so Pastor's, the, the Pastor's Kid? Kid and Help My Unbelief. And, I, oh, okay. I did the audio books for them. And, um, and so like I had to reread them to do that, yeah. obviously. And going through them, I was like, you know what? I, I, I pretty much stand by all this. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the, I think my writing has advanced. I, th- I, th- I think I'm a better writer now. But mm-hmm. the message of them, I, I go, yeah, I'm still, I still feel good about putting these in people's hands. Yeah, which yeah, is, which is good. I don't want to have a book in print that, that is I'm good. embarrassed by. That is positive. Um, my understanding is that you met J.I. Packer one time, I did. one time or multiple or. Uh, multiple times. I only okay. really remember one time though. Okay. What, what was he like in person? Very soft spoken, very kind of quiet or quiet, but not like, not shy, quiet, just okay. understated. Um, he, he's scholarly, you know, okay. so he's, uh, but he, he is really funny. Like he, he doesn't, he's had sort of a, a dry understated sense of humor. Okay. Um, and yeah, but just a gentle, kind man. Like you, yeah. I, I have, I've met a lot of who would be considered famous Christian pastors, thinkers, whatever. A few of them have that, that, um, I don't want to say aura. That sounds weird. The I th- way I think it probably works. The way yeah. that they carry, carry themselves, their countenance has sort of the peace of God. Like th- this, this man walks with God, mm-hmm. that sense about him. And he was one of those guys, um, where there was just a Jerry Bridges was another. Okay. And it's it's especially striking when they're older guys. So I met yeah. Jerry Bridges when he was probably late seventies, um, and J.I. Packer when it was it was actually he was at a big publishing event. It was to celebrate his eightieth birthday. So okay, um, and yeah, and just a like, yeah, this this man is infused with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and not because he's you know speaking in tongues, but just there's a you hang on every word. His his humor is kind of perfectly uplifting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it lifts yeah. spirits, but it yeah. doesn't demean anyone, right. which is not a thing I'm good at. Um, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, there's just a, he, he was like that. He was everything you hoped the guy who wrote knowing God would be. That's cool. That, I mean, that book was, that's that book 
Ray was kind enough to read that book with me when I was interning at church a few mm-hmm. years ago. And that's just a, I mean, that book is one of my all time favorites. Very, very impactful. Yeah. It's a bit of a lost classic. I don't mean lost. I mean, clearly a lot of people have read it, but I would say generationally, mm. it's kind of, it's kind of lost, uh, impact. Yeah. It, it influenced those who influenced our current generation. We should probably reread Makes sense. it. I think we should reread it. It's worthwhile. I just love watching J.I. Packer YouTube clips and any like. I yeah. just really like that guy. So it was um, it was cool. I, I wanted to ask you about meeting him. Yeah, he. Uh, I I love those rare opportunities to meet consequential Christian men who are better than you anticipate them being. Yeah, because I. Speaking of being a, a recovering cynic, I learned to be fairly cynical about famous Christian people because because they're fallen humans and they don't always live up to your hopes. Sure, uh, but he did. Just he had yeah. the, he had the humility of Christ about him, and it and it just exuded, and he was awesome. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So, hoping for happiness, people can buy this on Amazon. Where can, Amazon, where can they buy it? anywhere? Uh, yeah, okay. ChristianBook.com, right. Lifeway.com, whatever. And um, you are. I mean, they can just find you on the internets. And then you also have, a, you're doing a podcast, Happy Rant Podcast. Mm-hmm. People would want to check that out too. That would be fun if they did. You do like an episode a week? Yep, weekly episodes. Okay. Um, and we don't have a set release day because we are coordinating multiple schedules, so we don't okay. always record at the same time. But usually it's like midweek, Wednesday, nice. Thursday. I like that. Yeah. And it's good, by the way. Well, I mean, for three guys that just turn on the mic and start talking, it's, it's pretty great. So yeah, it, some, sometimes we get done with an episode and go, oof. That was trash, <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it it does seem to keep working. And we we still enjoy it, which is why we do it. That's great. So Happy Rant Podcast, people can check you out there. Any other places they can check you out? Yeah, I'm, I mean I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, and yep. those are probably the easiest places to find me online. Yeah, cool. Well, Barnabas, thanks for stopping by, man. Yeah. This was fantastic, it's and thank great. you again for serving Emmanuel so well. And I hope this book sells a ton of copies. You just just came out, right? Uh, yeah, about a week ago as of... A week ago today as okay. of this recording. All right. How are you feeling so far about the sales? I don't know. Sales okay. numbers don't come in for a while. So oh, okay. I, was tell, I was telling uh, my wife, I was like, this feels weird because all I see is the positive comments okay. on, on social media. So I feel really good about it. Okay, Very good. affirmed. Yep. But those might be all of the people who are aware of this book. Sure. So like if there's 300 tweets out there, it might be that's the 300 people who know about it. I gotcha. Know. We'll find out. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, brother. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you.